Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, the only show that takes a look at the obstacles and opportunities open to small to mid-sized enterprises that manufacture here in America. Brought to you by All Metals and Forge Group, with your hosts, Tim Grady and Lou Wise. Welcome, everyone, back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We are at fabulous FabTech in the Georgia World Congress Center in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm here with my co-host, Lou Weiss. Lou, how are you today? I'm doing great, doing great. Uh, we have uh, two guests uh, this afternoon uh, for this segment of our show, uh, Dr. Chris Keel, who's an economist, an analyst, and a humorist. And we have Mark uh, Hopper, Hooper, Hooper, sorry, Hooper, who is the FabTech <laughs> Show Manager, VP of exhi- Exhibitions and Publications for the Fabricators and Manufacturers Association. Quite a title there, Mark. Yes, it is. Um, but it's more, it sounds more important than it is. But um, <laughs> Does it fit on a business card? Barely. <laughs> well, now, we're talking about the capital spending survey that j- just came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark, why don't you give us an idea? It came out of, uh, out of your department, and then we can talk with Chris about part of its content. It, absolutely. So the, the capital spending survey uh, was something that we came up with nine years ago. And in each of those years, it's really proven to be a very accurate uh, predictor of, of course, where we've been. You can measure back five years, uh, a predictor of where we're going to end up, and then we project out into the following year. So, of course, this year we're 14, and, and going into next year we project into 15. And does 15 look good? 15 looks like it's going to be very good. Um, in fact, over the last five years, um, well, let me take a step back. What we're really, we, what we want to measure with the capital spending survey uh, is capacity utilization within manufacturers, and then we connect the dots from there, and we ask them, okay, depending on what your capacity utilization is, how is that going to tie into your capital expenditures going forward? So, in each of the last four years, there's been an increase, and there's been an increase in capacity utilization in five out of the last four years. This year actually being the highest with over 77% capacity utilization uh, for 14, uh, 65% have forecasted that that is going to increase into 2015. So, yeah, we think that it's going to be a very good year next year. Uh, as you can see from the show, the number of exhibitors, um, it's been a fantastic year for all of the exhibitors that are on the show floor right now, uh, and they're looking forward to 15 being even better. Give us a count on uh, how many exhibitors we have here today. Okay, so Fabtech Atlanta is actually what we would call more of a regional event for Fabtech. The rotation of Fabtech goes every other year. In the odd years, we're in Chicago. Every four years, we rotate back and forth between Las Vegas and Atlanta. Um, more machine tools sold in the Rust Belt in the Midwest, so that's why we have to be there every other year. And then in those even years, we rotate back and forth. So this is actually the second largest Fabtech that we've ever produced. It's beat every previous Chicago event with the exception of last year's event. 
So the fact that I can say that the 2014 Atlanta show is our second largest and that we're in Atlanta, that's a special statement. So I know it's a long wind. It's kind of like my title, but I'm <laughs> 1,400 uh, exhibitors are on the show floor today. Excellent. And the attendees are running in what numbers? Pre-reg for the show was running about 35 to 40 percent ahead of where we were in 2010, the last time that we were in Atlanta. Yesterday, we had over 14,000 attendees on the show floor. That marks the second largest FabTech single day that we've ever had. So uh, I was just talking with an exhibitor, Mitsubishi, right before I came for this interview. Uh, he was congratulating me on the fact that yesterday was the best day that they've ever had on a trade show, and that includes when they go to the IMTS event, which is more of a, a chip removal event, so the market is much bigger. So the fact that we can say that the smaller segment of their market beat IMTS, that's, that's impressive. And but, Dr. Chris Keel. Uh, Chris, you were involved with the uh, the capital spending survey. Indeed. When we're talking about 77% capacity utilization, does that mean I'm really kind of up against the wall and I have to do something? Not quite yet, but it's fairly impressive. If you look at the national numbers, capacity utilization has always been used as a benchmark for how industry is doing in the country as a whole. Average and average good is between 80 and 85% capacity utilization. When you're in that range, that's just about perfect because you're not pushing up against restraints. You're still using most of your machinery and your capacity to its best use. What's very impressive about this is that small to mid-sized manufacturers are generally a little bit behind some of the bigger manufacturers when it comes to utilization. To see that our numbers are up in the high 70s is very reassuring because at the national level, it's 79.5. So it's right there, very close to the national number. The other interesting thing about the survey is that when you get capital spending studies and capital expenditure studies nationwide, they include both machinery and real estate. They're talking also about building capacity, and it's sort of hard to separate those two out. What we're seeing with our numbers is pure machinery. There's no discussion in there about building new buildings or acquiring new real estate. This is all machinery, so it makes it a bit purer number, and it makes it a little easier for companies to evaluate who's in a buying mood and who's not. Uh, and I don't know whether it's a question for you, Chris, or for you, Mark. Any surprises in the survey this year that you've been at this? What? How many years have you produced it? Nine, did you say? Yeah, nine years, yeah. Uh, I don't know that there really are any surprises in it necessarily. Um, on any given week, you know, we're going to have an opportunity to speak with hundreds of the suppliers that are out on the show floor today and uh, to a company. And you could be talking with a welding guy, a uh, laser manufacturer, press brake manufacturer, tube and pipe. And to a company, they're going to tell you that 2014 has been very good, up and down from month to month, mm -hmm. but uh, certainly overall an upward trend. And so you, of course, take the next step with them and say, well, what are you thinking about 2015? And they're looking for better things to come. So the fact that we are where we are with attendance, not a huge surprise for us, of course, 
you know, you uh, take a lot of time a year to set up a big party and you, you hope people will come, but you're never sure until they, they actually are here. So uh, the fact that we've got 14,000 attendees on the show floor yesterday, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of, of 20,000 today, um, that bodes very well, certainly for 415 and the increase that uh, we're projecting there. Yeah, I wouldn't say there were surprises per se, but there was kind of a justification of some of the earlier assumptions that we'd made. What really stood out on the survey was that the larger companies were the ones that were doing the best. So companies that had 500 employees or more, 1,000 employees or more, all year long we had started to see movement with that size company, but they are traditionally the most cautious. They have the ability to hang back and wait for the market to come to them. So when they start to move, it's an indication that they are seeing the whole market move. When you look at some of the data that was coming in nationally and internationally, it was encouraging because for most of this year, we have not had any help from the European market. We're not doing as much exporting as we have in the past. The European market is in trouble. The Asian market's in trouble. In past years, we've seen exports kind of help companies over a hump. This year we didn't see it. And one of the concerns was without that European boost, without that Asian boost, what's domestic demand going to look like? The fact that we had growth without international help is a very good sign, makes people a little more confident about this year, also makes people confident about next year. Frankly, we can't do this forever. I mean, at some point, we really need to see some of that export market come back. But it's reassuring that we are in a position where our own demand and our own growth has been enough to sustain significant growth in in this whole sector. Uh, The Institute of Supply Management uh, PMI numbers uh, have been consistently going up over the last uh, year, actually. And I believe the number was 59.0 as of uh, the beginning of uh, November. Uh, Is your report showing it running in sync with the ISM? Yeah, very much so. And that's, again, very encouraging. One of the nice things about this survey is that it's forward-looking. It's looking at what companies are planning to do, not what they've done, though we can certainly get some historical data there, too. The good news with PMI is not only that the raw number has been up around 59, but new orders, which is their forecasting tool, has been in the mid-60s. People who are not familiar with the PMI, it's it's been designed to be very simple for the press. Over 50, good. Under 50, (laughs) bad. Um, So you don't have to go through a lot of explanation. And when it falls into those 40s, that's when you worry. France is in the 40s. China is at 50.2. It is two-tenths of a point above contraction. We right now globally have the highest PMI number, and there are 39 countries that do a PMI, and we're at the very top of the list. When it comes to new orders, very top of the list. Capacity utilization, we're 10 to 15 points higher than Europe. We're five points higher than Asia. When you look at the future for capital expenditure, it's, again, pointing at the U.S. Right now, whether people believe it or not, we are the most powerful economy in the world. We're growing at 3.5%, and it's kind of like, wow, we're going to the Super Bowl with a 7-7 and record. Um, But, you know, hey, (laughs) the other ones are doing worse, so it's hard to argue. 
I was fascinated. We heard Cindy Marsiglio speak yesterday from Walmart, and she said on a, on a world basis, competitiveness, the U.S. is just, you know, China, total cost to produce is just slightly less than us, and everybody else is higher. I was shocked by that. Yeah, we have very, very inexpensive total land and cost, and part of that is that we have a very good transportation system that mm-hmm. once something hits the country, it is easily distributed throughout the United States. We have very good productivity numbers because we're mechanical, we're technological, we're automated, we're robotic. We have all those advantages. And frankly, we have a more productive workforce, higher trained. We don't have enough of them. Uh, we're beginning to worry You know what we're going to do as that generation retires. But it doesn't take too long in traversing through Asia or Europe to see where the weaknesses are, you know, that the the infrastructure is not there, the training often is not there in Asia. China took off like a rocket early, but right now they have a labor shortage. This is a country of a billion, 300 billion people, and they have a labor shortage. You can only bring in people from the hinterlands for so long and put them in front of a machine and expect them to know what to do with it. I mean, one company was complaining and said, well, this latest bunch of recruits had never seen electricity, much less a machine. (laughs) So there's a little bit of a learning curve there, Um, and and that's going to be a problem. Clearly. Mark, I I know that uh, you put this show together. You're going to put together the 2015 show. Mm Mm-hmm. We always hear about this labor gap and an education gap, and I want to get back to Kristen in a minute on that education gap. Does Fabtech have any uh, work, doing any work with uh, universities or high schools to get students here to see all the cool stuff you have at the show? It's great stuff. Yeah, actually we do. Every year we will have a student program. We don't think that there's any better way to show a kid that might not be set for the college track to come to a facility like Fabtech where you've got 14 to 1,500 exhibitors to show them how cool manufacturing can be. Uh, I've heard reports, I'm sure you guys have too, 20% of of, uh, high school graduates end up going on and graduating from college. What's everybody else going to do? Manufacturing can offer a fantastic career choice for these guys. Um, So, yes, definitely. We'll have somewhere in the neighborhood of, of, of 500 to 700 students that will be walking through Fabtech every year. Uh, We do have a specific student program for them. Um, But in addition to that, the association that co-owns Fabtech, the FMA, uh, we just committed $500,000 to Harper College in Chicago, Illinois, to set up technical training uh, beyond high school to get those kids, once they're interested, let's get them trained so that they can get onto the shop floor. Uh, In addition to that, we do about 25 to 35 camps for junior high to uh, high school level kids, so it's extremely important. And it's not just manufacturing that is having problems finding qualified people. It's all industries having difficulties. So that is only going to get worse as it uh, as time progresses, so we think that it's extremely important that we get a leg up on all the other industries that are out there trying to attack talent as well. Uh, comment for the two of you, or a question for the two of you. 
we've been hearing numbers about compensation and income for manufacturing uh, here in the United States. Uh, Texas, uh, the president of the Texas Manufacturers Association told us that um, the average income for a manufacturing person in Texas is about $79,000. And we're hearing, I believe, the United States is Mm -hmm. uh, $67,000? Yeah, right about $70,000 on average. And it depends a lot on the skill level. And to Mark's point, you often hear the conversation presented as, you know, these students who are not college-ready or college-bound, and Mm -hmm. there's always this kind of implication that they're somehow not smart enough for college, so let's make them a manufacturer. The point is there are lots of different ways that people learn. And I was a professor for 15 years and studied that. And I discovered that 20%, maybe 25% of the U.S. population is a kinetic learner. They learn with their hands. They don't learn by some nitwit droning away at them at the front of the classroom. You know, and I tried to liven it up. But, hey, some people don't learn by reading. Some people learn socially. Some people learn in all kinds of different environments. The kinetic learner is a brilliant learner. They just learn differently than the average college classroom. And if you look at what is going on at this show, these are not fools running these machines. These are sophisticated, multi-million-dollar machines that people are running with precision, with accuracy, with pride. These are great jobs. They pay well. They're jobs you can be proud of. I mean, I was writing about that today, saying at the end of the day, if there's an apocalypse, I'm in trouble. You know, what am I going to do? Stand there with a board that says, we'll do charts and graphs for food? You know, somebody <laughs> who is in the position of making something is, is a valuable person. They're going to be able to survive no matter what. And at the end of the day, people are going to miss them a whole lot more than they're going to miss somebody like me. You know, we talked with uh, Dr. Stephen Melnick at uh, Michigan State University about what Michigan State is doing to try to uh, bring people along in to a position where they can go into manufacturing, only to discover that an engineer who has a four-year degree has lost two years of that knowledge is dated by the time they get their four-year degree. Right. Uh, you and I talked about, uh, Chris, about high schools and all of the shop classes are now gone, uh, but film critics I hear are doing well. Yes, yes. I, I was <laughs> relating the story of running into some kid that had gotten his film critic degree and then discovered that 758 schools offer advanced degrees in film criticism, 26 offer degrees in industrial management. So, I mean, you've got a real disconnect within the educational community, but beyond that, it's just, as you mentioned earlier, it's exposure. You don't know what happens in a manufacturing facility anymore. It's, it's people have visions of the 1950s newsreels that everyone was wearing hats and they were in black and white. No one knows what these white buildings on the outskirts of town do. And once somebody goes into one or comes to a show like this and realizes just exactly what's going on, you can see the spark. You can see kids getting excited. And long term, as you mentioned, that's a major issue for manufacturers. The majority of the people in manufacturing are in their 50s and 60s. We're finding ways to extend their working life, but there comes a point. I mean, I talked to a guy that his key worker is 91 years old. And the guy, <laughs> and the guy was like, 
well, you know, I, I'm looking forward to retiring. I, I want to enjoy my golden weeks. You know, and it's like... <laughs> now, Mark, I was astonished when we came in here and saw things being set up. The sheer size and weight of things that come into the show floor. Uh, what's some of the biggest stuff you've got coming in here? Because it's remarkable. You're correct. So I actually arrived in Atlanta last Thursday. That was the first day that we started setting up Fabtech. We had some of those largest exhibitors that you see out on the show floor, Amada, Trump, Bistronic, Mitsubishi. Um, those companies, because of going back to the skills gap that we talked about a little bit ago, uh, over the last 15 years have really been developing automation. They want to try to minimize the need that they have for the lower end labor. They need, well, first of all, they can't find them. Right. Second of all, they need to compete on a global basis. So they're trying to automate as much as possible, which is nice for me because to set up that automation takes a lot of boost space, so we get to do a little <laughs> bit better on the financial side. But believe me, it all goes back to those association, uh, nonprofit things where we don't make any money. But back to the question, um, yeah, it, it will take about two weeks to set the show up. We'll do the show for three days, and then it'll take about four days to tear it all down. Uh, you will have in excess of 12 million pounds of freight on the show floor. So wow. it's, it's virtually a small town that we're setting up in that two-week period. Uh, I have a question for you, and I always tend to be the one that brings up Washington, D.C. <laughs> and uh, so tell us your uh, insight on that, uh, Chris, as to what the Washington is doing, should be doing, isn't doing could do and yeah, so it's going to be an interesting couple of years, and one of the discussions that took place as a result of the election that just took place was whether or not there was going to be an opportunity to pursue some of the issues that were of importance to the business community and manufacturers in general. There are two schools of thought. One school of thought says that now that you have a clearly divided Congress with one party in charge of Congress and one party in charge of the executive that it will sort of bring the moderates out on both sides and they'll find ways to cooperate. Because in a lot of cases, you do have issues that both the president and Congress have supported. The other school of thought, however, is that the Republicans are going to want to try to put the president in as poor a light as possible by throwing as much legislation at him as they can, hoping that he vetoes a lot of it and ends up looking very obstructionist. And that would set them up for 2016. The business community is pushing very hard on both sides, saying we're tired of the politics. We have issues that are important to us. We think both of you agree with us. We want trade deals done. We want labor force issues addressed. We need infrastructure bills. We need more attention to streamlining regulations. We need all of these things. You have both said that you are in favor of these things. So shut up and get it done. We are trying to build the economy, but if you don't quit throwing roadblocks in front of it, our efforts are going to be for naught. And I think real early in this process, 
we'll be able to tell if there's going to be cooperation. I think the first three things that will hit will be a revision to bank reform, a change in terms of how we're approaching trade deals, and more attention to infrastructure. You're, uh, I'm sure you're very familiar with the C-Corp and S-Corp tax issue. Can you explain that a bit to our uh, listeners? Yeah, I mean, what you've got with these two different structures, and you've got to throw in the LLC as well, because companies organize under that as, as well. It basically affects what you pay in the way of taxes, and it depends on how you flow their money through, because with one version, the money stays predominantly with your company, and it's taxed as corporate profits. The other way, it becomes a flow-through to the individual owner, and he gets taxed. So companies are desperately trying to figure out which organizational structure is going to minimize the tax burden. The big tax reform conversation is around what to do with corporate taxes. Most of the European countries, which used to have very high corporate taxes, have reduced them because they understand that, in reality, corporations don't pay taxes, really. They pass them on in terms of higher prices. The companies that get stuck are the small to mid-sized companies who can't pass on those prices. So reform efforts that will match what's happening in Europe where less emphasis on corporate and income tax more emphasis on consumption and user taxes. Germany simply went to a point where they tax the stuff that the rich buy. And it's like, you know, how simple is that? The guy that's being taxed on his income moves. He goes someplace where he doesn't get taxed. You tax the most expensive Mercedes, and they do at about a 65% rate. Sales went up. No one buys a car that expensive because they need transportation. It's status. So the guy says, I am so rich, I can afford the car, what is the taxes? And it's a way of demonstrating where you fit, and and it's like they get more money than ever. Tax the boats, tax jewelry, tax expensive concert tickets. Now, I know, Mark, that you're probably already thinking the 2015 show. Absolutely. Uh, I understand that you have something like a half a million square feet here that has been filled out. 550,000 square feet here. We actually start selling the 2015 show in June so that what we want to do is try to get as many of these people onto the floor plan before they come here. We were successful in getting about half of them onto the floor plan. What that means is it's a mad rush to the show office for the other 650 exhibitors that did not get signed up yet. Uh, The problem for the ones that haven't got signed up, they get up there and they see a floor plan that's 90% sold already. So we've uh, just opened up another hall in order to accommodate that demand. Um, But, of course, it's not in the front door. There's only so many booths in the front door, and uh, people get a little nervous when they see that they're a mile away from it. Actually, we're 0.62 miles to the front door from our booth. We'll, we'll do better next year. <laughs> yes, but you're in the front row. <laughs> yeah, if you're counting backwards, that's yeah, true. Exactly. <laughs> uh, quickly, Chris, because I know that we want to have you on some future shows with Manufacturing Talk Radio. Anything else about the capital spending survey you want to share with us in a, in a couple of minutes we have left here? I think the most important takeaway is that you're seeing growth in every category. There have been years when the small companies grow, the big ones don't. 
The big companies grow, the small ones don't. And this year, all across all of the different categories, there was growth. Everyone's doing capital expenditure. They're doing it in a way that makes sense for their business. We're seeing a great deal of diversity. When you start looking at sort of the ownership structure of modern manufacturing now, a lot more women involved. I mean, in two days from now, I'm speaking to a group of associated women in the metals industry, and there's going to be several hundred people there. These are women that are in manufacturing. You now see younger owners, uh, younger participants, and it's, it's good to see that all of them are succeeding and learning from each other. I think perhaps that's the most powerful part of a show like this, is that people get a chance to meet one another and network and figure out that they have common problems and help each other out. It's not all buying and selling. There's an awful lot of mentoring and advice giving and getting an opportunity to find people who can help them. Mark, anything you want to share quickly in uh, half a minute or so about the 2015 show? I'm surprised to hear it's already 90% sold out. What a success. For all those suppliers that are interested, give me a call. Go on to the website. We'll get you taken care of. Uh, for all the attendees and the manufacturers that are out there, uh, Chris is 100% correct that Fabtech, what it brings you is an opportunity to see the latest and greatest in technology. That stuff that's going to make your business more profitable uh, and easier to run, easier to compete on a global basis. The next step with that, of course, is the networking opportunities. Next year in Chicago, we'll have somewhere between 45 and 50,000 attendees that are going to be on wow. that show floor. Uh, we'll have numerous networking opportunities for those attendees. Uh, we've got a, a program tonight where it's at the uh, it's a networking event for attendees and exhibitors. We're at the uh, College Football Hall of Fame. Uh, if anybody listening is interested, we're right on the campus of the Georgia World Convention Center. We'd love to see you there. Uh, currently, there's over 1,000 people that are registered to go, so we'd love to see more. And your URL address for Fabtech for our listeners is? I, I'm sorry. Your, the URL address? Your website. For your website. Okay, so that is going to be fabtechexpo.com. Love to have them go. Excellent. Thank you. Mark, uh, Chris, your, your website? My website is www.armada.intel.com. Thank you very much for showing today. We appreciate it. Good conversation, and we hope to see you next year. Great. Thanks for having me. We're going to step out for a quick commercial break. Manufacturing Talk Radio will be right back. All Metals and Forge Group manufactures open-die forging in blocks, hubs, shafts, flanges, cylinders, gear blanks, and custom forge shapes, including seamless rolled rings in alloy, carbon, stainless and tool steels, aluminum, nickel alloys, copper and titanium for parts and assemblies in aerospace, oil and gas exploration, defense, machinery, transportation, shipbuilding, energy and power, pulp and paper, and many other industries. Visit steelforge.com or call 800-600-9290. American Crane and Equipment Corporation in Douglasville, Pennsylvania is a leader in specialized cranes, hoists, and material handling equipment for industries including aerospace, 
nuclear, oil and gas, transit, construction, and waste handling. Call 877-877-6778 or visit AmericanCrane.com. That's AmericanCrane.com or 877-877-6778. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Welcome back, everyone. We're here at FabTech in Atlanta at the Georgia World Congress Center. We have two guests who've just joined us here from the show floor. We have Troy Roberts, who's president and COO of Ada America. Is that how it's pronounced, Troy? Um, Ada America. Ada America. A-I-D-A America is one of our guests. And Bob Southwell, who's vice president of sales and marketing at Ida America. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm very interested, Troy, in what the note here that says, paradigm shift in technology. Share with us what's happening with this paradigm shift in technology. Well, there's there's basically two uh, facets to the paradigm shift that we feel that happened in uh, 2008 after the financial crisis. Okay. Um, really, it, because okay. we're very heavily uh, servicing the automotive sector, uh, and we, ma- we manufacture uh, metal forming equipment for automotive, appliance, electronics, but it's 75% of our business is tied to automotive. <clears throat> Prior to the crisis, everyone was in survival mode. Right. Okay. Uh, and after the crisis and the bankruptcies, uh, it sort of leveled the playing field that people could invest here again, including the big three and their supply chain. Uh, so that was that was the first part of the paradigm shift it, it was that America... <clears throat> the American OEMs and the supply chain could invest in America again, mm-hmm. compete with the foreign competitors, be it Japanese, Korean, German, etc. But the uh, the second part of the shift was uh, the new cafe restrictions, uh, 54 and a half miles per gallon by the year 2025. It was enacted uh, by the administration. Uh, so 2025 seems like a long time from now. But in dog years and in car lives, it's, it's only a couple model changes away. So uh, I'm sure you're aware of the, the Ford F-150 pickup, mm-hmm. for example, that, right. that uh, is now all aluminum. And the 2015 model that just came out. <clears throat> well, these, these new materials, the aluminum and advanced high-string seals, they're very difficult to form. And uh, because they're much harder, they have uh, characteristics that the traditional stamping equipment has trouble uh, uh, processing. Right. So that's the second part of the the shift is um, really our customers are looking for new technology. And uh, we just happen to be sort of in the right place at the right time. And I'll, I'll let Bob sort of explain what that technology is and and how that has, uh, let's say, evolved from when we first started working on the technology in the, uh, let's say, late 90s, early 2000s, and then how it it, it matured to really at the right time uh, for what our customers are looking for. Well, Bob, I'm going to be interested to hear from you. I'm familiar with the days of carbon steel. You stamp that out, but certainly aluminum is a much trickier metal to work with. 
Yes, it is. And uh, the key thing is we're talking about not just aluminum like you see in an aluminum can. We're talking more of an aircraft-grade aluminum. So it's much, much more brittle than what people consider you know, day-to-day aluminum, which is obviously very pliable. So um, this aluminum obviously has to have a much higher strength characteristic. Uh, and so it, it's very brittle. And so that's the thing is we try to form it with the old traditional technologies it's going to uh, shatter or break uh, very quickly. And so uh, the parts shapes look very similar to, again, like you take it for a truck. You know, the, the shapes are the same as they have been for many years with minor modifications. But now people take the same die set, as you could say, to make the same part. They put this new material in, and basically the part will not form, or it, 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 it uh, thins the material too much, or it basically cracks. So they have a bad part. And so, you know, again, it's the, the auto, automotive companies, though, are like, well, it doesn't matter. You, if you want this business, you, right. have to, you have to find a way. And so that's where it's really changed. Again, in high strength, not just aluminums, but uh, the, two, the two big materials are aluminum, but aluminum is also very expensive. Right. It's higher strength steels as well. And they have very similar forming challenges. And so... That's where people then were looking for, like, how do we now try to form this? And uh, when we introduced the servo press technology, servo forming, which allows you a fully programmable stroke profile, uh, we came out of that technology, as Troy mentioned, in the late 1990s. And it was a very, very slow kind of creeping growth. We were still making mainly the older style mechanical presses, because customers are looking at the larger increased investment going, well, it's very nice, but I don't need that right now. And, of course, you know, also here in North America, as we all know, is you know, the 2000s was a difficult stretch. Mm-hmm. You know, the economy was supposedly doing good, but not so much in manufacturing. And, of course, you know, so everyone's kind of limping along through the 2000s, and then 2008 comes, and you know, the rug is pulled out from everybody. And uh, uh, luckily, you know, 2010, things came back very quickly, and the companies that survived then all of a sudden found loads of new business, but also loads of new challenges. And namely, uh, with the Obama administration passing these new CAFE restrictions, realizing these new materials are coming online, and they need to find a new, uh, a new technology to form it. And that's where suddenly we're now the servo technology where we introduced it, now others are also uh, coming on board. Suddenly, it came the Paragon shift of, okay, now here's a technology which actually allows us to form this part accurately and consistently. And you know, not, you're not talking about making 10 parts. You're talking about making hundreds of thousands of parts. And so it's really exploded, uh, really, in the last three years from you know, a very small portion to where now it's well past 50% of our business and really held back strictly by our manufacturing and engineering capacity because customers really want more product than we're capable of delivering. I'd like to go back to uh, a point that you mentioned before about the uh, 54 miles per gallon mandate. Um, I had recently heard that uh, California is looking to take a, a bite out of that savings by increasing state gasoline tax by 40 or 45 cents a gallon. Uh, is this mandate that the government is doing just another way of finding a way to reach into our pockets and take more taxes? That's an interesting question, I guess. You know, uh, you know, one of the things I think you look differently is in Europe, they basically forced 
uh, fuel economy by taxing, you know, petrol, gasoline. So the cost of, you know, uh, gasoline in, in Europe, especially the U.K., is, I don't know, two or three times as it is here, which basically forced people to look at smaller, more fuel, uh, you know, higher fuel economy. You know, here, you know, gasoline now is back down to, you know, $2.85. So it's like, well, I don't mind driving this big, you know, Ford F-150 or, you know, GM pickup truck and getting 18 miles to the gallon because I can afford it. So I guess the government's trying to force it by on the uh, the manufacturers with the fuel economy standards. But you get the question is, do they also force it by by taxing, uh, you know, the, the you know, that uh, all, all of us. But, you know, that's also probably a double-edged sword. That's probably a good way to get yourself out of uh, out of a job real quick as a politician. So, so Mr. and Mrs. America are still paying the tab Yeah. as, no. as usual. But, you know, Lou, the, um, you know, my personal observation, you know, the, the automotive industry was very slow to uptake a lot of things because people don't like change either. And it, but when they're forced to do something, a lot of things, amazing things can happen. And, and um, if you look at, you know, Ford taking the, making this decision to take the biggest, the biggest volume selling vehicle in the world, virtually, mm-hmm. uh, definitely the most profitable vehicle in the world uh, sold, and to to make this kind of change in pursuit of lightweighting the vehicle is is, is really remarkable. And a lot of people are watching to see how successful it is. But uh, it's really driving a lot of new technology. And uh, my, my personal opinion is, is, is that's a good thing. Because um, I know it's driven, you know, our industry to change. And if you know anything about mechanical stamping presses, they basically did not change for, since they were invented. Uh, as far as it's a big hammer, and um, you know the founder of our, our, the namesake of our company, Mr. Aida, uh, it's a third generation company, but now it's publicly traded in Japan. He, you know, back in the late, really the probably the early 90s and mid 90s, he said, our machine tool is the only machine tool in the world that is not using a servo motor. Uh, taking advantage of servo motor technology to improve its capability. And uh, he really tried to force that issue, but the technology wasn't there to apply these big, you know, there wasn't large enough servo motors that could generate enough uh, energy and tonnage to stamp out the parts of the Honda Accord. Uh, which is what our product does today. All the body panels of the, the, the Honda Accord and all the Honda products in, in North America. Uh, so it, it forced us to, to develop these motors and develop the technology. And and it, it's but it's that it's that change that's paradigm shift that's forcing people to focus on something new. And but clearly, the Fabtech show is demonstrating. Uh, the the expansion of, of the technology. Uh, you walk from booth to booth, and you're seeing all kinds of new uh, and innovative uh, uh, products and machinery to make new products. And well, the uh, many of the machines here are operating on iPads. 
Right. So, I was uh, always fascinated as a kid because I grew up in Wisconsin. I don't know how long you all have been in Ohio, but you don't go through too many winters before you see a body panel start to rush through. And even a kid can ask himself the question, why don't they put, make it out of aluminum? Because you know the aluminum foil that was on the grill in September is still there in April, undamaged. Uh, this is a big move for Ford to, to go to an aluminum-bodied vehicle. It's huge. Uh, and what uh, what is your sense of how they'll do that? How well they'll do with that? And then what you know that could drive the change I, across the industry. I, you know, I think they could take the risk because uh, if you think back. Ford uh, owned Jaguar Land Rover for a number of years mm-hmm. before they divested of all the assets of, to raise cash, and they, they were the only ones that did not file bankruptcy during the crisis, if you recall. Right. So they, um, and, and Land Rover, Range Rover, Land Rover had already been doing complete bodies in aluminum. Ah. So they gathered a lot of the, the technology at that point. And I'm, I'm sure I can assume that they've tried to perfect it even more on their own. And they did many, many tests. Um, uh, of course, the volumes they'll be doing are much larger than anyone else is doing. Clearly. So, uh, but, I, you know, I think they'll, they'll have the process down. They'll know what it is. I'm, I'm sure it will work well. Uh, Scott, the machine that, Bob, the machine that you have here does that one if i walk over and saw it is it stamping out body panels now or what is or there? well we we can't afford to bring a press quite that large to the show oh, if, I, if i fall to the floor <laughs> uh, but uh we have a smaller uh smaller a uh, couple smaller presses and really showing off again on uh, the one machine showing off uh blanking the higher strength steels so we call it like 980 megapascal so it's a very hard steel, again, used for a lot of the structural components. Mm-hmm. So while aluminum is being used in certain areas, they're still using a lot of steels as far as structural components because, you know, steel is so stronger than aluminum. Right, right. And so, again, that shows off a lot of customers how it's overcoming some of these issues with the high-strength steels. And then we have another line that uh, is running more of a pipe flange bas- uh, gasket, again, out of a high-strength steel, again, showing off some of the forming capability uh, of, of flowing the material. Uh, so it's... You know, it's always a challenge uh, where we have to do something with a smaller part but try to show off, you know, the forming capability and how changing the profiles can change the, the nature of the part. And that's when the light bulbs go off in people's heads and go, okay, I understand, and I understand how I could now apply this to my specific, uh, you know, applications. And I think that's one of the key things is, you know, newer technologies is it's obviously a lot more engineering you know, intensive to be able to use these technologies. And we, we work internally. We have a lot of applications engineers who then work with customers on how to apply this and help them be successful. Because, again, if you use it like you did use the old hammer, you're going to get the same result. So how do you use the new technology? And, of course, I think this goes in other areas here in Fabtech. And I, I really think one of the great things, though, is we talk about the reshoring of manufacturing and how manufacturing is really regrowing here. And uh, a lot of that goes to is, you know, back in the 90s and so forth and stuff's going to China, is it was, you know, the parts were simpler. So it was easy to send it over there. It was just a matter of labor. 
Now you're talking about much more engineering intensive, more training, higher end type of, of, of process to make the parts. And that leads it going back to bringing it back to the United States because simply they don't have the skill sets in a lot of these other areas to be able to do this. And so I think that's one of the successful things here now back uh, here in North America is that it's you know really causing a lot of reinvestment here versus of reinvestment and saying, oh, we're going to buy this, but we're going to send it to China or we're going to send it to you know Vietnam. And there's some going to Mexico, but most of this servo technology is all being installed here in the United States. Troy, explain to me servo technology. Are we stamping the part or squeezing the part? Uh, well, a little bit of both, depending on what it is. Um, you know, very, very simply put, if you look at if you're forming metal, mm -hmm. it's very important how you touch the metal when you first contact the metal, uh, and then the speed that you form the metal, and then how you release the part and still maintain control over the part because you may need to, to process the part to another station in a die set to, to do further processing to it. Under the old technology, this was all fixed. And so, for example, if you wanted to have more productivity and run faster, you just turn the machine up and it would run faster. So that's great. You can get more parts coming out. But the problem would be is your contact velocity when you're hitting the part goes way up which is not good for the, for the tool set, not good for the die, and not really good for the part quality. And then your forming speed would also go up, which may be beyond what the capability of that material is to form. And then your return velocity would go up. You may lose control of the part if you're using a transfer to, to, to pass it. So those were always the challenges with the old technology. Whenever you try to make an improvement in one area, you usually had something negative happening in another area. What the servo technology allows you to do, just like any other, let's say, servo, servo control technologies, is you can program what you want done when you're touching the part, your forming speed, how you're releasing, how much time you're giving for automation. Now all these 360 degrees are fully programmable and you can optimize that for the material material characteristics and for the um, for the automation requirements. And that that is I guess in a very simplistic way to say that's what it allows you to do that you could never do with the old technology. Bob, you mentioned the the largest machine that would stamp out car and truck panels. I know working with my co-host here who's uh, uh, president of All Metals and Forge Group, and uh, he's taken me into some forge operations where the forge hammer might have a, a two-story base underneath it to support this massive hammer. Is that also common with the kind of equipment you work with? Yes, it is. Um, we And we make from very small to, to very large. So like, uh, like there's pictures in our booth of the installation at Honda. Uh, they put uh, two high-speed servo tandem lines, one into Ohio, now one into uh, Alabama. That just started up about uh, six months ago. But, you know, the size of the system is it's probably from the base and the point into a basement. It's, you know, probably about five stories tall wow. and about uh, 100 yards long. Wow. So, but it's, yeah, it's like a, it's a building upon itself. 
Um, so, I mean, it's, you know, the installation period takes like six months. But again, what it is, though, is in really a four- or five-stage process now, they're able to take a coil stock or a blank and make a full body-side aperture to a car, make both doors, make trunks, lids, and so one line making all these parts for one vehicle. And, uh, again, it's, it's also, is, is besides changing materials, like even like Honda has found, it's just allowed them to create more interesting shapes to the vehicles, also change uh, thicknesses, uh, and save material savings, and also one of the critical things, uh, not so much in North America yet, but it's high energy savings. You actually save about 30 to 40 percent in energy cost uh, versus the versus the, the prior processes. Uh, so where, especially in the Far East or Europe, where electricity is much more expensive, mm-hmm. that's highly critical. You said earlier that uh, 75 percent of your business is automotive. Uh, give us some insight into the other 25% for the sake well, of our listeners. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, 75%, and, and a lot of that's more dollar value because mm-hmm. obviously if you sell one of these big lines like Honda, I mean, we're talking tens of millions of dollars. And we also sell a lot of machines which cost, you know, 80, 100,000, 200,000. But uh, our other big markets historically have been, you know, appliance, we call uh, white goods, lawn and garden. Uh, so uh, we sell a lot to the people, again, that make uh, washers and dryers and refrigerators, as well as uh, lawnmowers and so forth. And that's actually a very large market here in North America. Uh, so that's probably you know, 10% or more of our market. Then we also sell a lot to electronics. Uh, and areas that are started growing now with the servo uh, is a little bit into more to medical and also to uh, uh, aerospace. So, again, this technology, again, you know, you look at these parts, again, they're made out of, like, titaniums uh, and so forth. And, again, those are obviously materials which are very, very difficult to form. So they look at this as a really an innovative process to make these medical tools, devices. Uh, we have good customers that before they were making uh, the shells to uh, pacemakers. You know, very, you know, obviously this, ha- this can't leak. So they were, <laughs> right. the, their whole process, they would have to test every single shell. And they had a 50% rejection rate. Ooh. And we went to a servo, and their, their speeds went up about 400%, and their rejection rate went down to zero. Zero yeah. is probably the right number. Yeah. But, again, it's That's like the last thing you want to know is find out you have a pacemaker, and then, like, oh, it, you know, it appears to have a crack. And <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it, it's, it really opened up some markets, and especially even in, like, electronics. One of the things we talk about, the forming the material but what also a lot of customers have been able to do is they be able to bring in secondary processes and do like actually like assembly operations, uh, insertion of hardware, these type of things. And that's really been able to, to eliminate a lot of costs as far as material handling and secondary operations. One of our early innovators uh, in the Midwest, uh, they bought a couple servo presses and they were in electronics and they brought in these by using dwells and so forth in the cycle actually assemble the entire part in the press. It would come off and drop into a box. So they went to where before they were importing all this product from China, and this is going back quite a few years now, is they started exporting product to China because China could not compete with their cost because basically they had no labor. They had one operator running two lines nonstop. So it's like, uh, you know, in China, they were doing it the old-fashioned way. It's going through, like, eight processes. You keep, you know, 
boxing parts, moving them to the next stage. You know, it's very time-consuming and expensive. And by thinking out of the box and using a new technology in an innovative way, he basically turned the tables on them. Now, Troy, I'm thinking that my lawnmower housing that houses the blade thus must be a stamped part. Am I right? Yes, it is. Interesting. What other kind of stamped parts are people, besides you know, my, my washer, my dryer, my refrigerator, are people likely to run across out there that they don't realize is a stamped part? You're probably speaking into one. Yeah. I mean, if it's, ah. made, if it's, <laughs> if it's made out of metal, it's either been machined or it's been stamped. And, uh, and stampers, what they look for is the ability to, to take something that would be machined, which is a expen- comparatively expensive process, to something that's stamped, which is much quicker and much more efficient in material usage. And, and again, this is where the technology, the servo technology has furthered their ability to do that. But everything from the fork that you pick up to, to eat with, Right, uh, pots and pans, your your beverage cans. Uh, I mean, it's 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 kind of we see all kinds of applications. Some of them are, you know, we sold one to a company recently that makes uh, rock climbing equipment in Utah. It's like, wow, we never thought of that as being a market, you know. <laughs> but, wow, that is unusual. Uh, being that uh, aerospace is uh, such a robust industry and growing, uh, I think the number of Aircraft over the next 20 years is 40,000 aircraft uh, worldwide. Uh, where specifically uh, are the parts uh, that we're talking about being uh, generated in aerospace now? Well, um, most of that is we've seen has been generated on the West Coast, uh, quite a bit in Southern California, a little bit of Northern California, and also in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, you know, a couple of pockets like around Kansas and so forth. But the majority has been in the in the west coast of the United States. Meanwhile, there's a lot of aerospace now moving from the west coast and to North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, uh, Louisiana. So you may start to see a shift uh, in some of those parts that you're talking about. Yeah, I think we have started to see a little bit of that where, again, a lot of those manufacturers located on the west coast are now opening satellite divisions you know, in the southeast. We've seen the same thing in automotive. Frankly, it's uh, a large expansion in the southeast, and just follow where the OEM plants are opening. It's the same same story. Well, if they're planning to move here because it doesn't snow, I understand Saturday it's supposed to <laughs> snow here. <laughs> yeah, it'll certainly be cold. Before we sign off, we've just got a minute or so left. Anything else you'd like to share with our listeners quickly about? And make sure I pronounce it correctly. Aida? Well, um, you know, well, I think we're very pleased uh, where we're positioned in the market here and that, uh, you know, it's, it's nice to, after rather many years of uh, sweat and toil, to now have the right technology at the right time. And it's just a pleasure to be able to really, you know, I guess, you know, after many years to really start seeing the fruit of your labors and seeing how it's really helping in the marketplace, really helping our customers, you know, address their challenges. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and Ida is very committed to this market. When we came here back in the uh, mid mid '90s, we were one of many many press suppliers in North America that were manufacturing here. But it, 
if you look to see who's standing today, there's there's virtually no one manufacturing here in in North America other than a few, and uh, just, and that was a result of the very difficult times that the automotive industry went through. Clearly, and, uh, and we're Ida is just very committed to North America. Uh, I'm in my 20th year with Aida, and Bob, you're in your 17th yeah. year. We're, we, uh, you know, this is our market. We know it well, and and uh, we're we're very excited to see how the industry itself has improved. Um, and it's it's really fun working in in the business now. Oh, good. For the good. first 15 years, not so fun. Yeah. <laughs> well, we sure appreciate you folks being on the show. We've enjoyed the information. Uh, we look forward to uh, putting it out as a podcast so people can, can tune in to uh, mfgtalkradio.com and listen to it. You folks are certainly welcome to tune in and listen to yourselves on the radio. Uh, thank you for being our guest today. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be back shortly with Manufacturing Talk Radio. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Manufacturing Talk Radio will be right back. When you use the Premier Rewards Gold Card from American Express, the rewards points can keep on multiplying. Buy three with triple points on airfare. Buy two with double points on gas and groceries. And a single point for pretty much every other dollar you spend on the card. Then, start choosing from over a million rewards to redeem all those points. Apply today and the annual fee for the first year is on us. Call 1-800-AXP-GOLD or visit axpgold.com. The annual fee for the card is $175. See terms, conditions, and restrictions at axpgold.com. It's no secret that manufacturers are having trouble filling jobs. Now, with ThomasNet's new job board, help is on the way. For manufacturers, thomasnetjobs.com is the go-to resource to recruit new talent. Post your jobs and get in front of thousands of potential employees. Or, if you're looking for a new job or you want to reinvent yourself, thomasnetjobs.com offers exciting opportunities from the shop floor to the C-suite in supply chain management, engineering, production, or sales. Remember... ThomasNetJobs.com. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Welcome back, everyone, to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We're very excited to have a guest with us right now who was a keynote speaker here at Fabtech. Um, and, I, and I know that uh, you will be uh, interested to hear uh, what he has going on. Um, Mr. Rocky Blyer. Now, Rocky happens to be a four-time Super Bowl champion. Uh, he has a kind of a storied uh, past because I know that he played some football, and then he got pulled into the Vietnam War. Then he went back from that to football with injuries that no one believed he could overcome. Rocky, welcome to the show. We're sure glad to have you. Hey, hey Tim, thank you very much. Lewis, nice to see you after I've talked to you on the phone prior to coming here. You know, one of the big things that you did not tell them is what we share in common, being cheeseheads. Yes, that's right. right. That's right. We're, we're talking about the good old state of Wisconsin. I'm from Appleton. Yes. And Tim from Madison. Right, so, right. Lewis, you got any connection there? I'm from Washington, D.C. Oh, you poor guy. And that's why I, <laughs> that's and that's right. why I pick on them all the time. Do they? <laughs> Throw them that's, under the bus. Uh, yeah, that's right. Now, I, I also have to tell you, and, and to our listeners out there, that I'm somewhat very disappointed that I didn't get my complimentary canary uh, blazer. 
to be. We, we can <laughs> arrange. We can work that out. We can arrange that. Thank, thank you very much. <laughs> what, what, what size are you, Rocky? <laughs> you should see them. If you haven't, to our listeners out there, they they, they look beautiful. The, the two of them sitting right across from me in their <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> we'll make sure you get the coffee mug. <laughs> thank you. I want to, I want to get that. But uh, yeah, so it was a, it was a honor and a privilege for me to be able to be here, be the keynote speaker this morning. Uh, and it's always, uh, you, you, it, it's somewhat of a tentative situation or a position that you put yourself in when you're the keynote speaker for a reason, a keynote speaker, they want people to come when you kick off at 830 in the morning. You know, I know conventions, you know, right. most people don't get in till five. Oh, now I think we're going to skip this breakfast. <laughs> but anyway, we had a great turnout and a great crowd. And so um, it, that's always nice to see. Rocky, you have uh, an interesting past. I'm particularly interested in our listeners hearing this transition from uh, being in the armed services, being wounded and going back to football and being able to overcome. And you were talking this morning about manufacturers being the best they can be in overcoming. Right. You know, and, and, and I think, you know, there's a universal, uh, what? There's a universal lessons to be learned within our lives, you know, that transfer into business, no matter what it may be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, and, 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 and if you think about manufacturing and being the backbone of this country in, in all aspects, and especially now that I live in western Pennsylvania and in, in Pittsburgh, um, and where that manufacturing has always been uh, a, a, a backbone. But Anyway, so the transition. So the transition, and people say, well, you know, why? You know, what happens? How can you do that? Why do you overcome those injuries? But I think that it's the spirit within us as American people that obstacles that we we, we face, no matter whether it be in business and life, uh, personal, you know, we, 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 that country was built on overcoming obstacles. Mm-hmm. And, the, and, and the mentality and the mindset is just being able to do that. So in my case specifically, and people said, well, why didn't you give up? Well, the point is, is that, you know, they're, they're, I enjoyed playing football. I enjoyed playing, and I wanted to get back to that world. Why? Well, you know, because I get recognized for playing all the way through in high school and college, and I and I made the pros the first year before I got drafted, um, and um, so that was a goal to come back and play. And then secondly, is that one of the things you learn playing sports, or maybe in life, but sports specifically, is that no matter what, whether no matter what level, it it it, it sports is a matter of of managing injuries. You get hurt. I yeah. mean, you pull muscles, yeah. you, you know, you, uh, you got a knee injury, you, you got a shoulder, you get, it just, it just, and, and kind of what you learn early playing in the backyards is that, you know, if you want to play badly enough, is that, well, that injury heals, get a little rehab, and you're back out playing, you know, so right. you, you skin your knee, you come in, mom, Puts iodine on it, you know, did a little rehab. Does it work? Okay, fine. Well, get back out there. You know? right. So it's a, it's a it's a it's a it's a mental process. So in my case specifically, and I had a knee operation in in in, in college. You know, pulls and sprains and bruises as we all have who've ever competed. Is that you look at yourself and say, okay, you're injured. And, all right, fine. Yes. 
All right. Uh, you don't lose anything. You know, I didn't lose a limb. I didn't lose a foot. I didn't lose an arm. Right. So that's not going to restrict me from not going back. So it's a matter of time, one. And then secondly, rehab, two. So if you go through a rehab program and you got the time to go through the rehab program, um, and then you have an opportunity to come back maybe and, and play. So all you can really do is do what you can do. So you, the questions that you ask yourself, okay, fine. So you go back to, quote, the basics, the basics of business, the basics of life. You go back to the things that you know. Go back to running, distance. You go back to the gym. You start lifting weights. You start putting weight back on. Um, you start doing your stretching. You start doing your sprints. You might, you, in my case specifically, it took time. It took time for the injuries to heal. So I get back, and I go back to training camp in 1970. And I get an opportunity, I get an invite, I go back, uh, and it took its toll. I mean, it beat me up physically because because of time, and I wasn't prepared. So they were pretty good. I, I mean, they were good enough to put me on injured reserve, so they bought me a year. I came huh? back the following year, and they put me on the practice squad. So basically, they bought me two years. I had some income coming in. I wasn't married. I didn't have outside responsibilities. I could be very selfish about what I, what I want to do and focus. Uh, and but you have to take an op- you have to take advantage of of those opportunities when when they come. And so by 1972, um, you know I make the team playing special teams uh, with that. But we have immaculate receptions, a turnaround. The the team starts to gel. We win the first time in 40 years. We we get into the playoffs and and and, and things start. And and you're part of the group. Okay. And mm-hmm. so so. Ultimately, ultimately, you make your own breaks along the way, but you don't give up. You know, you don't say, "Well, I guess I can't play because you know I I got a I got, a, I got a, a bad knee or whatever it is." Mm-hmm. Um, until somebody tells you no. So that was always my my mantra. I didn't want to get down the line somewhere in life as we do, and some have somebody say, or you say to yourself, "If only if I would have." You know, if yeah. I would have taken that chance, if I would have worked out. And it's the same way in business. You know, there how often and more often than not, we run across people that I have, you know, who go, you know, I wish I would have done that 10 years ago. I wish I would have had the courage to make that decision 10 years ago or go out on my own or start my own. But I was too fearful. I didn't know what was going to happen. And, and we hold ourselves back without the ability to expand. And so if you look at those companies uh, and a lot of, and, and there's a lot of mom and pop, you know, people in manufacturing, extrusions, and so on, uh, that, you know, started out that way. They took that chance. They worked for somebody else, you know, and they pulled together a couple bucks and, you know, and they got this and they got that. And all of a sudden they continue to go on and, uh, and they said, well, how did you do it? Well, <laughs> you just do it. And I think that's, you know, probably... Uh, you know, probably the biggest thing. So what I, you know, so so what I also you know learned within that structure or playing with the Steelers is kind of a you know what's the theme of success? Why do teams win? What you know why do the Steelers dominate the 70s or the Packers dominate the 60s as mm-hmm. we remember um, or the 49ers uh, uh, the 80s? You know what do they have in common? What's the commonality? But it's okay. So you you, you look at Coaches, you look at coaches. So each one of those teams, and even going on today from the Pats and the Colts in 2000, you, you look at what they have done. Um, 
okay, so definable coaches. So they got a leader. So somebody that's at the head taking charge, you know, that is consistent without that period of time. Right. Secondly, and as well as, as you can't win if you don't have talent. <laughs> you can't win if you don't have – you can have great leadership, you know, you can have great vision, but if you don't have the workforce, <laughs> if you don't have the people, if you don't have the engineers, if you don't have the talent – if you don't have the quarterback or the running back, if you don't have the, if you don't have that talent, well, it's not going to happen. So that becomes suit. And then, and then, given that mix, then you get a chance to kind of create of what you want to be. People who come in right away and say, "Hey, this is what we're going to be," without a, uh, assessing what they have mm-hmm. or who they are or what their philosophy is, you know, they all of a sudden get drifted off of their uh, uh, off their mainstay. So if you have the leadership to be able to determine. Where are you going to go? You've got the people. Then you've got a vision. Hey, we got this. Maybe. Then ultimately, ultimately, like anything, is that there's got to be some time where you have to buy into it, where your workforce has to buy into what you're, what you're doing in your leadership, in this company, you know, is that you've got my back, that you're taking care of me. And, um, and only then does that make for a complete package. Uh, uh, along the way. So those are some of the things that I talk about in that comparison um, between what happens in business today, manufacturing as well, as, as, with our professional, as with our professional teams. And then it boils down to micromanaging of the little things that count because it's the little things <laughs> that, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's the little things that cause defeat or it's the little things that make a difference in your attitude, and how you win. No matter what team you may follow today, and, uh, and, you, and if they're out losing, why are they losing? Because it's the little things, a misread here or a misread there, or maybe not a great effort here, and you miss a tackle, and the guy breaks one you know, and scores, or you overthrow because you misread somebody and in, in, intercepted and it goes back and, and you lose the game. So it's all those little things. That, that really make a difference. It was a lesson I learned with Chuck Knoll, uh, and it was a long time ago. It actually, was, we were playing the Kansas City Chiefs. It was 1974, and I have to tell you this, because it was the first game I got a chance to start uh, at fullback. Okay, Franco had been hurt. The backup got hurt, and I was the only guy left. So, I, <laughs> so they, they had to put me in that position. And I had a pretty good game, in all honesty. I was pretty proud of myself. I I had maybe like maybe 98 yards, which was pretty good. Uh, our our other running back had like 136 yards. He had his best game ever, and we and we win this game. So as we now have our team meeting the the, the two days later, uh, all our chests were puffed. Mine was. I was feeling quite good, waiting for the accolades that Chuck would say, "Hey, what a great effort, running back," as he usually does. Um, we had a great running game. We had this. We had great blocking. Blah, blah, blah. He goes, the reason we won this game was because of the lack of habits that was created by the Chiefs' all-pro offensive guard. Because of the fact that he did not keep his position and opened the gates because 
When you practice against a player by the name of Buck Buchanan, who is a great defensive tackle for the Kansas City Chiefs, all pro, huge guy, and you practice against him every day, it's very easy to tell yourself, well, I'll take it easy here. I'll take it easy there. I'll open up the hole here. You know, don't worry. It's not going to happen in the game. I, you know, don't. It's not going to happen in the game. But, you know, I'm getting old too, and I got to take it easy during practice because it's all those little habits that we don't reinforce that ultimately will be our demise. So in this game, we had three sacks of Lenny Dawson, their quarterback. Uh, we had five rushes. You know, of, 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 of being able to force a, a, a pass and put a lot of pressure on them all. And so and I'm going, all right, he's taken what I think is this wonderful victory, <laughs> and he's boiling it down to the fact that that left guard did not do the basic fundamentals of what he needed to be. I go, okay, I don't need to hear anymore. I'm buying it. If he can break it all the way down to there, he knows what underwear I'm wearing. And so I think that that becomes very important in, in running businesses and so on, is knowing those little details, the little things, you as a manager, you as an owner, um, so that you know your workforce, your workforce buys into you. You go, okay. I mean, if he's so detailed, he knows what's taking place. You know, he's got a vision. And, and we start to do things well, and, you know, we, and we get contracts. And, uh, and so we do, and we start to win, you start to believe, and, uh, and all of a sudden, then there's magical turns. You know, then there's, there's a game here that you shouldn't have won, but you did. Uh, in, in our case, it's, it goes down in Steeler history as the Immaculate Reception, which we will always, not we, I mean me, or, or Steeler fans will always remember that deflected pass that Franco Harris scoops up and runs 55 yards down the sidelines to beat the Oakland Raiders in the first time in 40 years the Steelers ever got. And it was a turning point, and that's kind of a belief. And so those happen over a period of time, and it happens in, in all life and businesses as well. Well, you had one other thing going for you, I think, that the American manufacturer has had going for them, and that's a can-do spirit. Oh, you know, I, and we, we, you're right. And we as American people, as you well know, have that have that kind of spirit. I I believe, you know, I I, th- I think I think there's a you know what happens, and I want to get to this point because it is what's happening within the multi generational um, workforce that mm-hmm. we now face. Yes. So we, baby boomers, who are now running companies and or are, are, are the leading edge of the old guys. <laughs> you, right. know, you know, now look at the Gen, the Gen Xers and the Gen Yers. And so now, so now you get, let's just say, you know, that, that millennial uh, mm-hmm. kid that's coming in into manufacturing, maybe right out of high school or tech school, you know, 18, 19 years old. You know, they have what we perceive is a whole different viewpoint. And we don't perceive a whole different viewpoint of how things should be done, you right. know, uh, and how things should be managed, and what the expectations are. And sometimes we feel, I think, it's an entitlement policy. You know, what do you mean you're entitled? No, you're not entitled to days off. <laughs> you know, that's right. You're not entitled to, you know, a, a, a different work shift. No, this. You no, you've got. 60 hours a week, and you better put 60 hours in a week, just like I did. You know, that's right. <laughs> right. And, and, but now that's changed. 
but the fact is, is that when we were on that leading edge of 18 and 19 year olds, the quote seniors that were our parents and so on, all had a whole different viewpoint about us baby boomers. You know, free love, you know, and in <laughs> drugs and rock and roll, you know. And, you know, I mean, oh, they'll never make it in the workforce because they have no discipline. Uh, and so, so my point is that every generation that comes in is viewed differently by us older generations. Mm-hmm. But the expectations are—I mean, I think their their expectations are still the same. They, you know, they have more at their fingertips and so on. They want to be—they truly want to be taught. They want to be showed how to do things. They want to have an interaction with management uh, and staff, and not necessarily always to the betterment of of, of management of the way that, that it has been done. A lot of times, because of technology, because of of of, of their knowledge base. They bring ideas. So they bring ideas and say, hey, why don't we do it this way? Or, you know, I'd be more productive if, you know, if I uh, worked a split shift or if, you know, or I flex hours or whatever it might be. Right. And, and, and what you have to do to some degree is listen. You know, listen to what they have to offer as people ultimately had to listen to us and <laughs> what we had to offer. Um, <laughs> But I think that becomes, I, I, I think they, there is a can-do attitude that it prevails, quote, in, in, uh, uh, in, in, in American business uh, and in manufacturing, as in sports. Because <clears throat> we see our guys, wait, just my analogy. So we see our, our, our young professionals today, and I'm going, holy man. You're not worth twelve million. <laughs> you know, right. you're, 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 hey, and you're you're getting that kind of you're not putting up. It's not like the old days. Holy man, you guys don't even hit. You don't have to hit during practice anymore. Boy, we had to, you know how it gets. We had, we had to walk to school uphill both ways. You know, that's right. and, and, so the, and so it's the it's it's the change. It's the change. But the, what I, my point was that that young player today, the young player today, still loves to play football. He still wants to be the best. He's he's just he is just playing within the rules, and you know and how that and how those rules have changed just over over the years. So if you look at rule changes in sports in the last 40 years, and compare them to what has happened in in our manufacturing uh, economy, you know there's a lot of difference. There's a lot of competition. You know so we have become more innovative. Uh, you know and and, and compete against globally against uh, you know China in this in this manufacturing world so how do we bring it back you know to what 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 is happening here um, and so it's it but but and so the young generation still wants to work they still want to be productive they want to be patted on the back they want to be acknowledged the fact that they're 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 contributing and they they have something to say um, within the workplace and it's the same thing on that young team. They want to play. They want to be the best. They still want to compete. Uh, it, and people say, ah, they don't want to play anymore. It's only about money. No, it's not. Money's nice, but it's not. But it's, in the, it's the same thing in the, in the manufacturing workforce. You know, money's good. Mm-hmm. I mean, money is good. It's a, it's a great career. It's a, a great opportunity for people to, uh, uh, to, to, to have a job and consistent job and, and, and be able to, to move forward. The uh, numbers that we're hearing uh, in manufacturing, the millennials, uh, they're now beginning to earn 
numbers into the 60s and $70,000. And it's not like when I started in the metals industry when I was earning $20,000 and I got married at 21 and I asked for a raise and the boss said no. <laughs> That's right. I know. I know. You know. Yeah. And so, I mean, when I came into the league, I made 15 Thousand dollars. That's remarkable, isn't it? <laughs> it's a, but but um, I'm sorry, I, I jumped in on there. What you were saying? I was going to say you should have joined the metals industry. <laughs> That's right. I should have joined. You know, and um, but you, but yeah, I, I would. I mean, so what you're talking about is you know is an an opportunity, you know, and in the metals industry, um, which is that no matter, you must have been a sales. Were you a sales guy? <laughs> because all the sales guys make all the money. I, I, I understand. They, they're out there. They don't know what they're selling. But they, I mean, <laughs> they don't have to. They collect the commission. <laughs> That's right. When it's the guys that earn the shop, you know. <laughs> but even yourself, so, you, you look at uh, uh, you look at young technology or young people today coming in to uh, a field. And, and I think that the, their uh, perception has to change, you know, from a manufacturing point of view. And I think it's there, but it's just to be able to get that message out. So you get a you, you get a, a a young student in high school that is tech savvy because they all are to some degree, yeah, you know, they if they are. But it's tech savvy. The STEM's uh, education program is you know is very important, but who also ha- is innovative, you know, within um, uh, working in the computer world, you know, and so all of a sudden he's got an opportunity, and this is, I mean, he's got an opportunity to be have input. You know, within uh, a manufacturing world, you know, to be able to sit at a computer and be able to design, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and extrude and or cut in all of a sudden, you know, you go, where else can you do? I mean, in all, where else can you take that technology that you've learned and are interested in and apply it to something you can put your hands on and feel like I've created and I've built this here? You can in this, right. you know, so those, you know, those opportunities exist. Um, across the board. I see you've got uh, what looks like an iPad with you, and I see so many machines here that, you know, used to be operators. They're running with an iPad. Well, that's right, you know. And so I, I, I know that I know that uh, uh, Google has a big presence and is uh, um, uh, making a presentation. But in the manufacturing, you know, you say, well, how does Google have a man, you know, the presence with them? Because of, because of technology, because yeah. of that. You know, you're sitting over here with an iPad, and I'm designing <laughs> some intricate, you know, piece of machinery over here and uh and, 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 and then and, and the other thing too is that somebody's got to design the machinery you know to be able to do the things that we want to to get done right. so then that's a whole subculture that sits within that manufacturing world already and it's sitting at a computer and designing that you know three-dimensional piece of and then we got three-dimensional you know, speaking about three then we got three-dimensional <laughs> <laughs> that's manufacturing that's coming out, and you go. That's oh, the new one. That's the new one. You know, you go. Okay, but it still takes man. But the important thing is, it still takes manpower and 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 uh, and people to perceive um, that it's it, it it's it, it, it's a it's a great career and it's a great job and and it's great great value uh, and you're doing something. I mean, it's like it's like bringing it back to its roots. You know, bringing it back to. United States and, 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 and America, what we did, how we built this company, country, you know, and 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 and, and take pride in, in, in those those benefits that we have. 
I know that when we were growing up, you probably watched Star Trek, Gene Roddenberry piece, and I know, you know Lou and I watched it, and just a week ago, they came out with the Star Trek communicator that you tap, and somebody else at the communicator could talk to you. And I, and I marvel at the kids these days, and I tell my wife, you know, the stuff that we saw in sci-fi 25, 30 years ago, they're going to look at today and go, why not? Well, that's right. Why not? You know, we looked at it and said, oh, that, <laughs> oh it's all magical stuff. But, right. The, uh, the, the latest technology actually occurred today, where the European uh, Space Agency landed a lander, a rocket ship, on a comet that was traveling at 41,000 miles per hour, and they landed on that comet. Did they really? So uh, this is uh, just another step going in that uh, Star Trek uh, technology world, and uh, it's just unbelievable what's going on. And here at the show, seeing all the technology, um, you know, I've been in the metals industry and manufacturing industry for 50 years, and I remember walking through all the manufacturing shops with oil on the floor and chips on the floor and you don't have that today anymore. Not today. Uh-huh. It's very different. Very different. So, you know, one of the things that I, I, I uh, and I, I wanted to bring up, and since we're here in Atlanta uh, in, in, in the show, is that, you know, we have a whole, you know, if, if, and I'm just thinking this, you know, if manufacturers ultimately are looking for, um, you know, they're, they're looking for employees. I mean, they're looking for people to be involved. They're looking for people to, to come from a hiring perspective. Well, the, the state of Georgia uh, has established with the Veterans Administration and the state of Georgia um, a uh, intern program for uh, veterans, for actually for current military people. And so within their last six months of, mm-hmm. of, 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 of their duty, um, they can uh, get an internship paid by the VA to the employer mm. to hire them as an intern. Mm. And, the, uh, and the employer, all the employer has to do is, uh, is make sure that that intern um, has a shot, not a guarantee, but just a shot, to be able to be hired by the company, so it's 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 a way of being able to get young military people uh, involved in the manufacturing world without a cost to the manufacturer, uh, and gives them a six-month window of being able to assess and at least make an offer if he's lived up to that success. And I and it's a pilot program that has just started. And I thought, well, what a wonderful opportunity um, uh, for for the owners or manufacturers who are looking for people, you know, and so I, get, I can get on the, the the bandwagon and talk about the the the, uh, the reasons why you should hire a vet, <laughs> right, <laughs> you know? right, but, but you know because of discipline and you know and being on time and regiments and you know and uh, work ethics and so on that they bring to the to the to the workplace. Uh, here's just an opportunity in Georgia to be able to take advantage of that uh, through the VA. Is that only available in Georgia? Right now, yeah, right now it's the trial. It's just here. Um, I just heard about it uh, today. Uh, it's, uh, but you know, so there's a, one of the things I got my iPad for. And in, in this, you know, I was at a 
I was at a veterans breakfast yesterday um, in Pittsburgh, yesterday morning, uh, oh. before I flew to come here to Atlanta. Uh, and, um, and so as I was there, all of a sudden I get this card from, uh, from a company called the New Century Careers, and it's for Western Pennsylvania. And New Century Careers is basically uh, a, a, um, a, a, a is not necessarily for veterans, but for high school kids or for anybody who wants to make a transition or change a career hmm. in the uh, manufacturing industry. So they will help school you, you know, and put you through a that the schooling program, whatever hours that are needed to make that adjustment and so on. Uh, and then be able to place you, you know, within uh, the workforce um, out out there. And I thought, you know, I, I'm sure that there are other facilities like this uh, around the country, you know, that maybe aren't getting recognized that need to step up and say, hey, this is a program that we have, you know, for our young STEM qualified, you know, people who might have a interest in manufacturing, but here is a way to be able to get in. Uh, we, we'll give you the schooling, the educational process to be able to to change on on hands, and then give you an opportunity to be placed somewhere within the, in the workforce, and to make a nice salary, and to have a long you know career and a, a possible career. Um, but it also continued. And one of the things that I was, and one of the things that they also had was for high school kids. Okay, uh, who might have an interest, and I, I'm going to get this wrong, but it's basically a, uh, a it's called uh, robot, robot, robot eye, whatever it is. But it, but it, but what you do is you, it's like a, a little program, and you get to design your own robot. Oh wow! While you're in high, you know, while you're in high school, just from a technology point of view, and design it and make it work, and and so they show you how to go through it to create that interest and that bond within the manufacturing, and get some little hands-on experience of what somebody goes through, so that it, I, I just thought it was an interesting. Uh, yeah, there's there's a big movement in that today, and uh, going back to your point about the vets, there are a lot of programs available today uh, that's pushing and promoting uh, vets for jobs Correct. in manufacturing. Right. And it's really good to see because they, they've done a wonderful job for our country and it's yeah. time for our country to do a job for them. I saw, I saw, one, I saw one of the booths here, you know, about uh, hire a vet or, you know, placing a vets down right. the line here. Right. And I thought, oh, well, you know, good for them. Um, and you know, and I, I just and, and not to dwell on the on, on the veteran issue, uh, but all those disciplines that I think that 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 we look at as businessmen, we look for our employees, you know, are already tested by that veteran in in returning and coming back uh, into the workforce. And so, uh, you know, I also think this. It just and this is just an aside. This is a little political thing. Is that how we view? It's a perception that we talk about how we view our returning veterans. Mm-hmm. And because there's a lot of emphasis, as we well know, on the wounded veteran. You know, there's a lot being done for the wounded veteran. So we get stories on post-traumatic stress. We get you know stories on TBI. Uh, we we get statistics about. Uh, uh, suicide rates, uh, you know, that somehow it, it, what happens is that it covers the majority of, of, of returning veterans, is that they're all damaged a little bit somehow. And so as an owner, you just got this perception. And if you're hiring, you go, 
Oh, you know, is he is he is he okay? Is he going to stay with me? Is he going to be here? Uh, you know, is he going to fall off the cliff? Uh, right. You know, six months down the line. But the, but I mean, my, my, is that yes? There are a percentage, you know, of returning veterans. But the majority, you know, seventy-five percent of our returning veterans are just returning veterans. They're just coming back to the workforce. They're coming back to go to school. They're raising their family and so on. And and, and they're very productive individuals that have served our country. And so, just uh, I just want to kind of erase that little stigma that's you know that's out there, or at least be aware of that they're not all like that. It's an interesting point. I think it's an important point, Rocky. Right. Oh, by the way, let it not go unsaid. Thank you for your service. Oh, you're welcome. You, you, yeah. you did come back at a time <laughs> when uh, the veterans were uh, not welcomed with open arms, as did my brother, who was also also over in Vietnam. Right. Yeah. It was a tough transition for you guys. You know, it, it and that was, and especially you know, for that generation, our generation, you know, and those who had served at that time, you know, were. Uh, all they wanted to be was thanked, you know. Yes. And, and, and but you got identified with the conflict, and so now all of a sudden, um, it, you know, you were quote a baby killer, you were whatever it might be, mm-hmm. uh, and not looked upon. And so you repressed all those feelings, try to go back to you, you know, your life's work. And um, and for some of the, um, the for some of the soldiers that came back it was a difficult transition. It was a difficult transition because they had nobody to talk to. They had nobody to understand. Uh, nobody in the family or community because they were all against the war to some degree and it wasn't fair and so on. It wasn't a, uh, you didn't have a VFW to go through to or an American Legion. You were kind of, you know, buffed from that uh, experience. So it was, you know, basically a replacement war unless you went over early with a unit. Unlike today, where you go over with a unit, you come back with your unit. You train with your unit for the most part. Um, and so there's some bond and commonality, and you get to know the people there. That one, you were just a replacement soldier. You went over by yourself, and you came back by yourself. And so there was no support mechanism for you to when you returned, you know, and you just kind of drifted back into going to college and or the workforce or get married at 21, you know, and on with your life. And, um, and so some guys had some very difficult, you know, transitions. I'm particularly interested in the comments you made about a high school uh, a student being able to build a robot because I know when you and I went to high school, we had you know, wood shop class or one of those industrial programs, and now look what they're doing today. No, it's amazing. I mean, it's amazing. And it's just that, you know, and I, I have uh, two young girls that are 15 and 16, you know, and so... It's like I'm old. <laughs> I think I'm pretty capable, you know, of working on the computer. I think I'm pretty capable with my iPhone. I do have an iPad, you know. It may not be the up-to-date one, but I got an iPad. Yeah, but they they rip it out of my hands. No, Dad, this is how you do it. Boom, boom, boom. This is how you do it. You know, we'll get because they're not afraid to try. They're yeah. not afraid, you know, to because it's not going to break. <laughs> I think what they learn is that it's not going to break, or if it does. Well, Dad will fix it. <laughs> Dad will buy me a new one. <laughs> That's it. Dad will buy me a new one. <laughs> one of the manufacturers here yesterday was talking about that that topic about they're not afraid to try, and that's one of the good good things about the millennials is that you know they already had ten years or more of uh, computer and software and so on, and they just sit down and start pounding away at the keys and can either learn and or create 
new technology themselves. It's amazing. Yeah, I mean, it, it I really mean, is. it's amazing. I see what my girls do on, on, on like on our home computer, you know. So I mean, for for high school, in a, in a, I go, I, 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 I wouldn't have time to figure out how to. They just <laughs> boom, 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 they go and then, you know, and they know where all the buttons are. <laughs> they know where all the apps are. They know everything. Yeah. I go, okay, fine. Just tell me what to do. <laughs> I went. We've been going back and forth to the hotel, and my daughter has been with our team here. And as we get lost, I hand her my smartphone, and I say, figure out how to get us over to the convention center. <laughs> and the second later, she hands it back to me and says, it's all programmed in debt. <laughs> I have a clue how to do it. Oh, God, I'm glad I'm not the only dumb person here on this <laughs> show. <laughs> oh, my smartphone's way smarter than I am. <laughs> That's good. Well, we have certainly enjoyed having you on the show, Rocky. <laughs> Thank uh, you. Uh, Thanks, Tim. W- what yeah. a pleasure. Now, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our audience as we kind of wrap up here uh, about anything from your past and how it relates to manufacturing? Because that's really kind of a neat connection. It, uh, it, you know, it is. So let me see. Let me see. Where else do, where else do we have uh, to? Uh, oh, you know, I, you know, a lot of things. I mean, some of the things. Is that some of the simple lessons is that I was talking about before, and I was talking about you know you got to get people to buy into, but, but into whatever you're doing, you know. But the the best way of being able to do it is to simplify the methodology, you know. Simplify. Wait, we get carried away with technology. We get carried away at times of over-explaining, you know, what is what is happening, whether it be a customer, you know, and right. um, basically a customer who says, I want to do this. Well, we're so proud of our technology. We go, well, we can do this, but we can, because we do, I don't know all the terms, but we get this extrusion, we get this, and we get this, and I get this, and I get this, and we can put this, and we can do this, and we get this. I'm going, oh, no, I just want this. <laughs> don't don't <laughs> right. over-explain it. You know, so if you simplify it, because then I understand more specific of what, or, or easier, and so then I can go, okay, you're, you're my guy. You're not, I'm, I'm, you know, this is what I want to get done. Uh, and so I, t- I tell that story. I mean, I, I, I basically tell that story within comparison because it's very important in, in, um, in, uh, in simplification, and especially in, in the realm of our past illustrious quarterback, Mr. Bradshaw, you know, who, who, who um, loved or was very proud of the fact that he called his own plays. And, and he took control of that offense. And so, uh, um, and he talks about it even to today on, you know, on, on Fox on some Sunday. He always talks about, I called my own plays. But what he does not tell the, the, the folks is that we only had four plays. So, so be, <laughs> that's why he had two running plays, two passing plays. He did a wonderful job, mixed them all up, you know. But, <laughs> but the point is, you know, if you've got a simplification of the method, method, methodology, you know, people right. understand what you're trying to get accomplished, you know, and it's a, don't make it too, yeah, if you too had, complex. If you had to learn all of the positions, oh, yeah. That'd be a mess. <laughs> that'd be a mess. And all the, you know, and some, oh, you know, today, so you got, you got, so we, I mean, it was very simplified. I could understand it. It was very, Bradshaw could really understand it. So, <laughs> Really simple at that time, <laughs> so, and I think that's what that, that's what needs to be done. A complex game plan uh, isn't necessarily the uh, the best for uh, for the team. I would agree. Yeah. Rocky, what a pleasure to have you on the hey. show. You know, some point down the road, we're going to think of, oh, geez, we'd love to have Rocky back on the show for this. We'd love to have you back. Well, I appreciate it. Rocky, we can do that. Very, thank right. you very much. Thanks. 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 We're going to take a quick commercial break here. All right.
American Crane and Equipment Corporation in Douglasville, Pennsylvania, is a leader in specialized cranes, hoists, and material handling equipment for industries including aerospace, nuclear, oil and gas, transit, construction, and waste handling. Call 877-877-6778 or visit AmericanCrane.com. That's AmericanCrane.com or 877-877-6778. All Metals and Forge Group manufactures open-die forging in blocks, hubs, shafts, flanges, cylinders, gear blanks, and custom forge shapes, including seamless rolled rings in alloy, carbon, stainless and tool steels, aluminum, nickel alloys, copper and titanium for parts and assemblies in aerospace, oil and gas exploration, defense, machinery, transportation, shipbuilding, energy and power, pulp and paper, and many other industries. Visit steelforge.com or call 800 800- Six zero zero nine two nine zero. Welcome back, back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. And we're back with Manufacturing Talk Radio. Uh, Tim Grady here with my co-host Lou Wise, and we have with us uh, and and Ann, I, I uh, see that you are the president and owner of Goyer Management International. But you're also uh, the executive director of the Chemical Coders Association International, or CCAI. That's correct. I, I'm glad that somebody wrote out for me what CCAI meant, because I, I don't know what any of the acronyms mean. Uh, thank you for being on the show. You're welcome. I didn't realize I was going to have to follow Rocky. That's a pretty tough one to do. <laughs> I will not be nearly as interesting as Rocky Flyer. Uh, we won't talk football, I well, promise. Well, actually, I can talk football. Oh, oh okay. You know, <laughs> oh. And that's where Rocky went. That's right. That's right. Um, chemical coating. Yes. I mean, that's certainly something that, uh, and I try to have our audience hear, uh, real-world examples of where chemical coating makes such a big difference that, you know, we just kind of take some things for granted, and that that's a huge piece of it. Give us some examples of chemical coating. Everything you see and touch every day has some type of finish on it, which is chemical coating. A paint, huh. a plating, it can be decorative, so it makes it look pretty. Everything from your car to lawn and garden furniture to desk furniture to all the displays here at the show, everything has a finish. And it, it often is to make it look nice mm-hmm. for the consumer, but it's also very much to protect it to make it last long. So uh, coating serves two purposes, protect the piece, and of course to make it look nice so that people want to buy it. Uh, can you explain to our listeners the difference between the chemical coating and powder coating? Well, powder coating is a chemical coating. Ah. Okay. So, so in in the in the industrial finishing world, we have all types of coatings. You've got liquid coatings, which are your typical paints that everybody's familiar with, a a liquid that you you spray or dip. Um, Then there's electro coating, which is also a a type of finishing where you run electricity through the paint and Mm -hmm. the part opposite, so it sticks. And then powder coating is really what we call a dry paint, where you take uh, the paint and basically pulverize it, turn it into a very fine powder, almost like a, a baby powder would be if you haven't seen powder. Uh-huh. Uh, you can go over to in 
It's also, I'm going to show you some powder. Um, and then that is sprayed onto a part, and then it runs through a curing oven where it melts, comes out as a, a paint. It would look like a liquid paint if you mm-hmm. didn't know the difference. And then it's dried. So I it's was, just a difference. It's, it's very environmental. I was actually surprised to hear that they cure that at about the same temperature I bake a potato. That would be correct. Uh, um, somewhere between... Depends what the the coating itself is, right? But 350 to 500, somewhere in there. Yeah, I was I was surprised by that. Now, all those different types of chemical coatings are all companies that are members of the association. That is correct. So okay. we have companies that manufacture the paint coatings, powder coatings. We have companies that manufacture the equipment to apply the paint and powder. We have a lot of chemical members because it's very important to pre-treat a part. Clean that part before you paint it, or the paint will not stick. The powder coating will not stick. So a lot of the pretreatment companies are our members. And then the systems houses, those are the folks that put a paint system together for you, You know, do the design work and, and put all the parts together. And then the curing oven folks, and then all the auxiliary equipment like uh, racks to hang parts, uh, conveyors, that's all part of our industry. Now, now, is the EPA absolutely driving your members nuts? Um, you know, I don't know that it's so much now. They did, I would say, in the 80s, the 70s. Uh, I think that's really why powder powder took such a drastic, um, yeah, yes, in the 80s, mm-hmm. uh, because of EPA. But now I think you've got a lot of liquid coatings um, that are more environmentally compliant, and it's not nearly as bad on the organic side, the paint side. I think the plating side of the business is a little bit different. Um, you know, they've really been hit hard by EPA regulations over the last 20 or 30 years. Hmm. Yeah, I imagine they have. The the baking process, we heard a little bit about that from one of our guests uh, yesterday. Okay. Um, The size of the parts that you're restricted to regarding the furnaces, Uh, can you explain that? Well, most of the ovens that are used to cure paint... um, Several types: a convection, a convection oven, uh, an infrared oven, which is, you know, if you're familiar with infrared heating, mm-hmm. um, that's very popular now in industrial finishing. Um, yes, the, the size of the part, the size of the oven can determine how big the parts can go into it, but they can build you just about anything you want today. In terms of the in terms of size, size, yes, yes, no, and and in industrial finishing. Most of the things that cure parts are ovens. Furnaces are usually higher temperatures, and those aren't used to cure paints and powder coatings. Ah, interesting. And would that go on like an assembly line where it moves through the oven at a particular rate? Many of them do. Ah. But actually, many of the shops that are here, the the job shops, the fab shops, um, they probably aren't using an automated paint line. They're often using a a batch system where they're, they're still have people out there on the line spraying. Really? But then there are also big paint lines that are conveyorized, automated, um, automanu- automotive manufacturing, right. obviously, the, those kinds of things. Um, so you've got a, a good mix of both. Now, tell us a little bit about what CCAI does for its members. Um, we're really a, an education and training association. We were founded back in 1972 in the Midwest. We still have uh, Many active chapters in the Midwest, but we've grown throughout the country. We've got a chapter on the West Coast, a chapter in Texas, a chapter in the Southeast. And we primarily offer training and education for industrial finishers worldwide. 
um, in-person training, um, training here at things like Fabtech, but also online training. Because we know, you know this is an aging industry. Manufacturing is an aging industry. Right. And we need to work very hard to train younger people to get them into manufacturing, not just manufacturing, but into our finishing area. And we are working hard both with colleges on a local level, technical schools, um, and then through our chapters to try and reach and bring in younger people into the industry. When you say bring them into the industry, what, what would a young person of 25 years old be doing in a paint or powdering environment? Well, you know, it, it, there's so many opportunities. and Right now we're putting together a, a guide that's called Careers in Finishing, and it's going to give you an idea of all the different types of things you can do. And I'm talking from a marketing and salesperson all the way up to, um, you know, ultimately go into management. We were talking to somebody today who actually started at a very low level when he got into manufacturing and worked his way up from... I can't recall what he did to begin with, but then he became a line supervisor and then he grew into management. So there's lots of opportunity. I think the challenge is for us the challenge for us is to get them interested. Um, and we paint and manufacture a lot of fun things. I mean everything you look at, it doesn't matter whether it's an ATV or a car or a motorcycle, um, Harley Davidson's a member, there's a lot of fun things in our industry that kids don't realize that there's opportunities in manufacturing. And, you know, it's not the old dirty manufacturing that it was in the 20s. It's not that way anymore. I was just at the BMW facility in South Carolina last month, and it's incredible. I wish we could take every 16-, 17-, 18-year-old through a facility like that. That gets them excited. You were involved with uh, Manufacturing Day, were you not? Yes, we were. You want to tell our listeners a little bit about You know, it's a, it's a, it's a great concept. It, it drives home at the local level. You know, the whole idea was to, for local manufacturers to open their doors, invite the public, students, parents, and then local government into facilities so that they could see what manufacturing in 2014 is all about. This program was started about three years ago um, under the guidance of FMA, one of our partners here at Fabtech, and it's just a great program. Every year it grows more when we have more and more companies getting involved in it, and it's a great way to for people to see that manufacturing drives America. I mean, it really does. I mean, we need manufacturing to keep growing, to be relevant in the world today, and we need younger people involved. And this is a great way for, I think our biggest challenge is that parents don't think about manufacturing as a career opportunity mm -hmm. for their kids anymore. Um, they want them to go to four years of college, and that's great for some kids, but for some kids it's not. Right. And there's just so many opportunities if kids have the, the chance to see what manufacturing is about, to see what industrial finish is finishing is about, it, I, I think they'd be interested. Well, it's, it's interesting uh, that uh, you're talking about BMW here, that you were at their plant, and we're talking about made in America, and, and BMW is a European car that's made here, Toyota is a Japanese car that's made here, same for Honda, so uh, Americans produce quality. Absolutely, absolutely. And if you get a chance to go through a facility like a BMW here or a Toyota in Kentucky, it's pretty amazing when you watch what people do and, and they, they tell you how they operate. You know, you're not doing one job for eight hours at a time. They move you around so that you're, you know, you're doing different things. Um, and the quality that comes off those lines, it matches anybody in the world. This seems to be a recurring theme that we're hearing uh, 
the last two days and even before that about uh, the the changing uh, of the technology and drawing the young people in as a result of computerization and, sure. uh, and the fact that they've the 25 year old has been already using computers for the last whole 10, life. 15 yes, years. Their whole life. Uh, it, it's really phenomenal, and I understand that they have uh, about 700 students coming through the tech show. Uh, they, are they local students? Um, I would say they're probably mostly within an hour, an hour and a half, mm-hmm. and we reach out to local technical schools and local um, um, technical colleges, mm-hmm. and we provide them with information ahead of time, and then we seek out exhibitors that become student-friendly exhibitors that's marked. They welcome the students in. They show them demonstrations. They teach them what their particular area is all about. It's a great program. Uh, I'm wondering, and I, I don't mean to throw a, a gotcha question at you, so <laughs> d- don't don't feel embarrassed because you're not going to probably no one knows this answer yet. Of the millennials who have been brought into these all these programs that are now available, I'm one I'm wondering as to what percentage of them actually wind up going into manufacturing. I don't know. I think it's too soon. I, I don't think anybody's really done any statistics on that yet. It's too early. But I really believe that the growth pattern that we're on in the U.S. and you see things coming back to the U.S. and the opportunities that are there and the pay is good and you're treated well, um, I think a lot of them will stay a long time. I really do. Actually, I think the pay is uh, phenomenal. Yeah, it really is. It is. Uh, it's between sixty and $80,000 uh, for somebody who's no longer an apprentice Correct. but somebody who's... Uh, Got some seasoning under their That's belt. That's pretty darn good. I would say so. Now, in the so. CCAI, you mentioned doing some work here with students. Throughout yes. the year, do you also run programs to get students familiar with your particular industry? Yes, we do. And we also have a national scholarship program and scholarship programs from our chapters um, where students can apply online if they're in a technical program. So, uh, our Wisconsin chapter, for example, this year gave away seven scholarships to local kids in their area that are in some kind of related studies program that could bring them to industrial finishing. And then we also work with a technical college in um, the Twin Cities area, Minneapolis, Century College, where every other year, every three years, our chapter up there does a, a local symposium for students and for the folks in the region. Um, it's a two-day event that is very, very well attended and open to all the students. So, yes, we work very hard on that. Now, your members uh, and Manufacturing Day, did you have a lot of your members participating in Manufacturing Just Day? Just starting. This was the first time, this is the first year that we were actually uh, a supporter of it. Right. And we had a handful, and I had a lot of people tell us that, they plan to do it next year. They just didn't know about it early enough this year. Right. Um, one of the things we really want to do is tie our chapters in next year and have all of our chapters have an event in their area around Manufacturing Day and hook up with a, a one of our corporate members and hold an open house with our chapter. So that would give us another 15 or 16 facilities around the country that would host events next year. Uh, before I forget to ask you, what is your website address for those who are listening that would like sure, to learn more information about your organization? www.ccaiweb.com. Thank you. You're That's welcome. I, I know that the uh, association, every association, is looking for, for more members. How many members does CCAI have now? We have about 600 members nationwide right now. Um, 
50 of those are what we consider corporate members. Mm -hmm. Those are paint equipment manufacturers. And then we have about 35 custom coders. Those are job shops that bring in products, paint them, send them back out. Okay. Do you have any educational institutions who are members? Uh, not that I know, but we've never really gone after them. Usually we provide them services free of charge. Mm, okay. Okay. I mean, we're, we're certainly looking, uh, as we talk to different people on Manufacturing Talk Radio, what is the educational system doing to try to catch up Correct. to this gap? Because they are, in fact, a bit behind the curve. Well, uh, let me explain what we're, we're working with um, Wichita State University right now, and this is just in the development stages. Um, we've given them access to all of our training videos and our training manuals that they want to use for their course curriculum. We're not requiring them or their students to become a member. This is something that we want to work on together so that they've got better tools to train their students to come into our industry. So mm -hmm. that's just in the in the infancy stage. Oh, that's that's great. I love to see the synergy developing now between education and manufacturing. It's it's critical. Uh, it, it it most certainly is, and I think we took it for granted for a whole lot of years because we just had lots of students who went into manufacturing. And now there's a clearly a skills gap. Yes. Uh, and we're struggling to get caught up in this country. Well, and I think it's important for us to reach the guidance counselors and, and people in colleges that are helping direct kids into career paths, mm -hmm. that they're aware of what we have to offer and that we there's good careers out here in manufacturing in all aspects of manufacturing. And it can be a, a challenging. You know, it's not that you're going into a career that it's mundane and boring. Manufacturing isn't that way anymore. There's lots of opportunity to, to be creative and progressive and innovative. And if you walk across the show floor, you see all of that. So I think the opportunities for younger people today in manufacturing can be whatever they want it to be. Is uh, your organization at all involved with any of the government uh, departments to help promote uh, manufacturing to the younger folks? You know, not right now we're not. We do some things with, with EPA, but it's more on an educational basis mm -hmm. than, than reaching younger people. But um, we're actually a, a small staff, growing but small. Um, so, you know, we fight the battle that everybody else fights. There's <laughs> only so many hours in a day, but all important. Now, you've got EPA issues, you've got labor shortage issues or a skill shortage issue. Any other big obstacles that have to be overcome in order to uh, help manufacturing move forward in your particular industrial areas? I just think, I think, I'll give you a good example. I think the state of South Carolina does a great job hmm. at understanding why manufacturing is important to the state. They're doing all the right things to attract the right manufacturing. Yes, they are. And, and they prove that governments locally, nationally, and industry can work together. I think a lot of the states around the country could should look at South Carolina and what they've done and, and take that model. I mean, it's it's not easy. I'm sure it, they've put a lot of effort into it, and, and you run into a lot of roadblocks. But if you look at who's set in South Carolina these days, they're, they're doing okay. Well, to support what you're saying, uh, there's a lot of uh, industry moving into South Carolina. There is. North Carolina, yeah. uh, Georgia, yeah. Louisiana. A lot of it, as it relates to my business, All Metals and Forge Group, the aerospace industry, yep. there's now, I think in North and South Carolina, there's 150 aerospace companies that are operating and have moved to the state thanks to uh, tax abatement exactly. and uh, uh, 
uh, financing arrangements that they yes. work out for companies. And it has been a partnership with everybody in South Carolina. It mm. hasn't been driven just by one group. Um, and, and I think that's what other states have to overcome. Everybody has to understand if we work together, it's going to benefit everybody. Certainly we're seeing a lot of movement here in, in Georgia as well with, uh, I guess there's something like 15 or 20 sound stages in existence, another 15 or 20 planned. Hollywood seems to be bailing out of California. We had the president of the Texas Association of Manufacturers on, and he said a 1,000 people a day now move into Texas. That used to be a California brag yes. in the late 1970s when I went out there. It's very expensive out there. It, it, and it's, it's tax crazy. Uh, the businesses are being driven out of the state, and no new ones can set up in the state. I'm afraid they're really going to hurt themselves. Well, I'll give you an example. I mean, as an association, we hold a lot of meetings, conventions, and we've done business in California for a long time. And we're out this year, and it's, it's, it's just too much. There's just too many other places that you can go mm-hmm. and not pay the prices and the taxes that you're paying in California. And it's, it's going to start hurting them. We just heard uh, earlier today that uh, the state of California is, is opting for a uh, 40 to 45-cent tax increase on gasoline just when gasoline prices are going down. It's kind of defeating the purpose of yes. helping the American yes. public. Yes. My wife was just out there, and it turns out that they had put a rider on a referendum that the voters voted in and didn't realize they just voted in a 75 cents a gallon possible upper limit on the gas tax. They just didn't know it was there. And that's how Jerry Brown got it through. (laughs) So I'm not sure how well that will play out for him. And anything else you would like to share with our listeners about your industry, about your association that you feel they ought to be aware of, particularly if they're, you know, whatever age group, millennial? I would just like to see people in general talk. I mean, when they're talking to young people, so many kids, 15 to 18, they don't really know what they want to do at that point. True. I would love for people our age, whenever they get an opportunity to talk to younger people and you talk about what are you going to do in 10 years, at least talk about careers in manufacturing, what the opportunities are, because I don't ever remember that happening as I was was coming into this industry, and we need to do that now. Really instead, of, instead of play dates, we should have a job date. <laughs> exactly. And actually, this this industry, this forming, fabricating, stamping, finishing, a lot of great people. I mean, for me, I've been doing this since 1980. started when I was 10. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing for me, and I think the thing for so many of our members, is we've become a family. Mm-hmm. We help each other out. When somebody has a problem... They call CCAI because they know we can help them get their problems solved. We work together. Even though there's a lot of competitors in the association, people are willing to help other people out. And you have a good time. I mean, life is short. So right. you might as well work in an industry where you like the people you work with, you like the products you produce, you can be proud of them. Our members are very proud of the products they produce. Um, and that's really made it all worthwhile for us. And I think that's something that, uh, particularly the millennials, need to uh, get their head around, is that this is an opportunity to be proud of what you do. Yes. It's not all glamour. It's not all the next uh, uh, high-tech startup. 
there's another way to live in America, yes. And, yes. It's a, and it's a great way to live. And we certainly appreciate having you on the show as our guest. You did fine following Rocky Thank Flyer. You. <laughs> <laughs> we love Rocky, so it's okay. So uh, we will certainly look forward to next year when yep. Fabtech is going to be Chicago. in Chicago and maybe having an update from you then. That thanks, would be great. Thanks for Thank being you very much for having us. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Have a great day. You thanks, too. and we're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back with Manufacturing Talk Radio. Manufacturing Talk Radio will be right back. When you use the Premier Rewards Gold Card from American Express, the rewards points can keep on multiplying. Buy three with triple points on airfare. Buy two with double points on gas and groceries. And a single point for pretty much every other dollar you spend on the card. Then, start choosing from over a million rewards to redeem all those points. Apply today and the annual fee for the first year is on us. Call 1-800-AXP-GOLD or visit axpgold.com. The annual fee for the card is $175. See terms, conditions, and restrictions at axpgold.com. It's no secret that manufacturers are having trouble filling jobs. Now, with ThomasNet's new job board, help is on the way. For manufacturers, thomasnetjobs.com is the go-to resource to recruit new talent. Post your jobs and get in front of thousands of potential employees. Or, if you're looking for a new job or you want to reinvent yourself, thomasnetjobs.com offers exciting opportunities from the shop floor to the C-suite in supply chain management, engineering, production, or sales. Remember... ThomasNetJobs.com. All Metals and Forge Group is an ISO 9001 AS and EN 9100 manufacturer of open die forgings and seamless rolled rings in alloy, carbon, stainless and tool steels, aluminum, copper, titanium, and nickel alloys. Visit us at SteelForge.com or call 800 800- Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Can I have one of those chairs? One of those ones? Okay. Uh, we're, we're back with uh, Manufacturing Talk Radio, and uh, we have a new guest here uh, this afternoon, David McPhail from Memex automation and uh, David is from uh, Burlington Ontario Canada and he's going to talk about uh, some new technology in regards to software and machines talking to machines did I get that right yeah yeah exactly that's a uh we were uh, the leaders that's, that's in the end of the, that's the end of the show <laughs> <laughs> It's good that it's good that that's the end of the day for both of us. Now, David, you uh, talked about uh, having the ability to get uh, information from the shop floor to the top floor to get management information it needs uh, to know how things are running on the shop floor, and not just the newest, latest, greatest machine, but quite possibly an older machine. How do you interface with one of the older machines? Well, we have a uh, circuit board we call the universal machine interface we basically take any digital signal from the control and it doesn't matter what genre of manufacturing equipment we're talking about we convert that to an MT connect signal and we actually turn that piece of equipment into a web server so think of it as a small little circuit board addition with an ethernet jack either wireless or wired on it and we take the heartbeat of the equipment and we calculate capacity utilization but we basically send that data out via MT connect do you, are you guys familiar with MT connect 
I'm not even familiar with what the heartbeat of that equipment is, so you'll have to educate our listener. Fair enough. So, uh, MT, well, let's start with maybe a little bit of uh, background or information with respect to MT Connect. Right. MT Connect is an open source, royalty free, XML based protocol funded primarily by AMT, the Association for Manufacturing Technology. It's free to deploy, free to join, and free to utilize. And what it basically does in a nutshell is turn any piece of manufacturing equipment into a web server using the language of the internet, whether HTTP and XML. So you're saying that a 30, 40 year old piece of equipment can be converted into a large iPad? Uh, basically what we do is uh, any the, the age of the equipment is irrelevant. What we're really tracking here is when the equipment's running and when it's not. And when it's not running, we like to try and get as much information as to why it's not. Things like e-stop, alarm, feed hold, uh, in the case of a CNC machine, M00, M01, or M30. Uh, but you know, we also do non-CNC type equipment. We do punch presses, we do injection molding machines, saws, uh, and other manual type process machines. The reality though is the most important signal of all of the signals that we collect is when it's actually physically running and producing the product that the manufacturer is ultimately making. That's the most important signal. So you're saying that almost all of these old machines have some kind of signal because they're plugged in. Well. You know, think of an old type saw. You know, we have maybe it's got a contactor. When the contactor's on, the motor's running. So if we can sense when the contactor's on, we know the motor's running. We know if the machine's shut off, the contactor's off. We know that if it's in e-stop, the contactor's not in. So if you take a combination of a few simple digital signals, you can actually start to track what the equipment utilization is, and we can tie equipment utilization through our software layer to profitability, uh, through, uh, calculating what we call capacity utilization or OEE, overall equipment effectiveness. Okay, and you're really measuring uh, how much the equipment is in use, when the operator is on the equipment, how many things they're producing with the equipment? Correct. And, and obviously, the newer the equipment, the richer the data set. Specifically, uh, you know, as an example here, we're here co-exhibiting with Mazak Optonics, the laser division of Yamazaki Mazak Corporation, and they have an MT Connect adapter for their new lasers. So basically, it's a plug-and-play exercise for us get data from that equipment. Mm-hmm. Okay. So where where are the some of the specific savings that a manufacturer is going to see in using uh, your uh, technology? Uh, it differs and it varies for different types of manufacturing equipment, but uh, in the case of CNC equipment, uh, one of the biggest offenders is optional stops and mandatory stops put in the program so to stop the equipment from running. So the only way that equipment starts to run again is the operator goes over and hits the in-cycle button. So it'll sit there forever and a day, dwelling essentially, waiting for operator intervention. If the uh, Some of the companies that have a lot of these optional stops and mandatory stops, they were put in the programs a long time ago for prove-out, checking uh, tooling, checking dimensions, things of that nature, and nobody ever went back and stripped them out. So with the way the lean manufacturing has gone today where one operator runs multiple machines in a cell while he's attending to one problematic process or one problematic machine, there's another machine in that cell waiting for him to simply go over and hit the, the start button. I mean, that's a good example. Uh, machine const- some machines may constantly go into alarm and may speak to a maintenance issue. Uh, that's another example. Uh, you know, things that, that we don't think about that I mean, the machine's quite capable to run, but there's no work order for the machine or there's no operator for that equipment or, or there's no dunnage to take the parts off and put them in. All these downtime reasons kind of add up to the point where you know, the average equipment utilization of a factory today, they I'll tell you what they think it is, I'll tell you what it actually is. Okay. 
what they think it is is 65 to 60 to 65 percent. When we put our equipment in, our technology in, and start to measure it, the actual average benchmark, benchmark is somewhere between 30 and 34 percent. So there's a disconnect between perception and reality. Perception being, I think I'm 60 to 65 percent efficient. Ones with humility will say, but yeah, but I know there's room for improvement. The reality is the actual number is 30 to 35 percent. So the, the ROI, uh, I, you and I were talking the other day, and the ROI on this equipment is... Well, our IRR rates on average are 400%. So with it, with and we've got over 100 customers now. So that's approximately a payback of three months. That's amazing. Yeah. Now, it's interesting to me that you've got this equipment that goes in, and we were just uh, hearing in the uh, capital spending survey that the country appears to be running at about uh, 65 to 70% capacity utilization at it's moving upwards towards the 80s. At 80 to 85, you're really in the sweet spot, and you're telling me it may in reality be half that. Yeah, because if you're, you cannot manage what you cannot measure. And so if you're, not, if you're collecting data on a manual process or not collecting it at all, there's a certain assumptions made about the process that may not be actual. So if you start to measure it, you start to look at when the machine equipment's in cycle and when it's not, Every time it's not in cycle, if there's a valid reason for that, great. But most of the time, those reasons are, are opportunities to capture, to recapture that utilization and turn it into productivity, a direct relationship between productivity and profitability. So now the, the top floor has an opportunity to tie this in between the shop floor, too, in other areas that you're purchasing, do they not? Yeah, so we... We, well, we say it right on our shirt. I know it's radio, so you can't see it, but we say shop floor to top floor right on our shirt. And basically what that means is we'll take any company's ERP or management system where all the financials are done, where all the typically where the MRP, where the materials actually purchased, and we'll tie that information directly to the data we collect from the shop floor so that we can do things like feedback inventory and procurement, drive inventory and procurement modules directly so there's no manual data process or manual data crunching and ultimately data entry through this process. It's done seamlessly. Now, the typical paradigm today in manufacturing is go make this, in other words, a work order, and tell me when it's done. Right. right? What we do is we take that work order, we calculate the efficiency of the process through every step, and feed that information back to ERP so the next time that a project or a job is done, the actual costing is really there. It's not the theoretical costing of what the simulation software said it should be. It's what the actual time it took to do that job, including all of the downtime that most companies don't track today. What's the biggest resistance you hit to try to get people to understand what appears to be very valuable software and, and information. It's, it's, a, it's a cultural issue. And the culture issue is this. Companies uh, don't believe that this is a, you know, it's a new tech, it's relatively a new concept. Technology itself, some of it's brand new, some of it's not so brand new, but the, but the concept is that if you can measure the equipment, you can tie it directly to productivity, you can feed that information back to ERP, People think that's way too complicated to do. And maybe 10 years ago it was really complicated to do, but today it's about as plug-and-play as you can possibly get. The cost is affordable. And people don't believe it. So it's, it's a bit of an education exercise and a bit mm -hmm. of an identification exercise. You know, I, One of the questions I always get asked by most companies, prospective companies, is, yeah, you don't understand our business. And, here's, and I'll say, well, I always ask the question, why? And they'll say, well, yeah, but we use this type of manufacturing equipment. We use this type. We cut this type of material. We use this type of tooling and fixturing, and uh, and and uh, we do this type of work for these types of customers. And we'll say, yeah, but you know, if if we could increase your utilization by doing something simple like 
given the operator the ability to call forward requisite resources, whether it be engineering help, tooling help, quality first off inspection, if you're doing chip cutting, empty your chip bin, that kind of stuff. If we can have your chip bin, as an example of metal cutting, emptied more than once a day, would that be a value to you? Say, say we could empty it twice a day or have it empty twice a day. And you'd be surprised how many people will have to think about that for a little bit and synthesize it. They come back to me and they say, yeah, yeah, if I can, if I can increase my efficiency by double, that's extremely important to me and very valuable. It's not rocket science on how it's done. It's just a mindset. It's a mind share that has to be accumulated through manufacturing through pretty much every vertical. Now, whether it be machining or metal forming, bending, cutting, welding. From the time that you uh, convinced the manufacturer owner of the concept to the time that he's operational, what kind of time frame are you talking about for implementation? We took a toolkit approach to the market. So we've got customers that within four hours of receiving a purchase order, we're actually tracking data off their equipment if it's capable of delivering it to us. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling like I'm in disbelief also, and it's not culture. <laughs> I, know, I know we're on radio, and you know, visuals are difficult, but I'm ha- you both can come over to the booth, and I'll show you exactly how it's done. That'll be interesting to do. Thank you. So uh, now that's, that's within hours you can literally start giving them reports. How long does it take, um, David, to design a report for management because I know we we go through this with a lot of people. For instance, I, I've done some work with Lou's shop and designing a report, and you go, oh, yeah, but that's not exactly what I meant was. Are your reports pretty standard? We we have about 35 or 36 uh, can, what we call CAN-based reports. Uh-huh. What we've given the, the company, the, the customer, the power to do is actually take that information and create as many custom reports and custom views of that data set as they like. Things like uh, I want to sort it by operator, by shift, by work order, by product standard, all that's built into our system. So things like the including and excluding certain downtimes or including or excluding certain reject reasons. We track 20 downtime reasons, 20 reject reasons per piece of manufacturing equipment. So it, it's a toolkit approach. So I can call that downtime reason anytime I want. You can appreciate that if I, I'm running a, a, a plasma cutter or a laser cutter or a, a bending machine or a, you know any... It, all those downtime reasons and reject reasons are slightly different. Mm-hmm. Okay, we have the ability to customize the software to suit each individual piece of equipment. So you start to get to the root cause analysis, and very quickly, root cause analysis is exactly what you need to look at to improve the productivity. And those reports are all customizable by the user. I didn't want to be in the custom report writing business. <laughs> I don't blame you. Yeah, you don't want to be you don't want to be caught up in that world. Uh, I'm glad to hear that it, it's easy to. Uh, to write the reports because that tends to be a, st- a stumbling block for most software is that you've got to go back to the to the provider and say, oh, I need this report, and they've got to write the report, run it for you, you look at it, you go, oh, that's just not what I wanted. Yeah, so. it, that's, that's not the business I wanted to be in. The other thing that we do that's kind of innovative is we actually, once that report is produced and you get, you select the different criteria by which you want to launch a report, you now have the ability to schedule it and it goes out by email. So it's an automatic scheduling process by which that report's delivered to your inbox at the end of a shift, at the end of a week, at the end of a month, whatever the aggregate totalization of the data is, so that you're actually not spending less time physically in the software crunching numbers and more time taking the data and actually affecting change on the floor. You know, David, I look at uh, all of the modern technology we have here at Fabtech. 
are you talking about this kind of technology passing off data? All because I, I guess I'm surprised um, that there's not more of this already in place because it's so valuable. We have uh, again, manufacturers are slow to adopt change, and we've we've started MT Connect. We'll speak to MT Connect for a minute. MT Connect started in the, the chip making or chip cutting arena. It's now kind of crossed over to some of the fabrication equipment. So there's still a lot of work to do to evangelize manufacturers. I mean, I've got a press manufacturer here, uh, Beckwood Press, who, who makes hydraulic presses. They're actually going to install our product and actually make every one of their presses MT Connect capable as they ship it. So, I mean, that, that's one small step for man, as I'll say. I mean, we've got lots of manufacturers right. here, and it would be impossible for me to go and visit every one individually. Uh, but the more critical mass, it's uh, sort of like a snowball at the top of a hill. The further it rolls down, the bigger it gets. Mm-hmm. And we saw that in uh, in the chip-making side of manufacturing. And we'll, I'm sure within the next year or two, we'll start to see it in the fabrication side of manufacturing. Okay, so there is a lot of equipment here that the top floor, even if they had it, might not have the reports they need. And it doesn't necessarily give the reports in their shop from end to end, there's a lot of equipment here that, that you would need to use a product like a product like ours, our universal machine interface, to be able to get the data out and send it to a system like ours. The beauty about using MT Connect, I go back to MT Connect again, it's kind of a foundational piece of the discussion. The beauty about using MT Connect is now every consumer application can consume that same data stream. So it's not some proprietary special protocol. I'm mm-hmm. sure if I walked around here and talked to uh, some of the manufacturers here, some of them would have the ability to spit out data but it would be in their custom proprietary protocol, which means from a, the vantage point of both the customer and, and us as a supplier, as a solution provider, we have to decrease the cost that the customer ultimately pays because we have to write a custom driver to interpret that data and then import it into our system to create value. I'd rather just create the value in the system and spend the time on the integration piece and on the, and the, on the education piece and on the use piece than I would spend the time to actually write a custom software driver for one particular manufacturer's piece of equipment only to find out that every other competitor in that in, in that same genre of manufacturing equipment have to do it over and over and over again. Now, if, if we can get them to speak one standard language, the beauty of MT Connect is it's also a data dictionary, not just a transport protocol. So, every, you know, when I talk to, if, let's assume that, you know, just use the metal cutting for a minute, execution active or in cycle is the same no matter what piece of equipment I talk to that's capable of speaking MT Connect at, at that revision level. So I don't have to... My integration time is nil. I, I can plug and play. I can plug into the equipment. Equipment starts speaking to me intelligently. I know how to interpret that data. And I'm now not engaged with the customer, not on the implementation side, but on the execution side with respect to using the technology that it just purchased to get out of the gate and hit the ground running. Now, I'm assuming that some of these plants have uh, production lines where they may have three, five, seven pieces of equipment. And you're collecting data for each of those pieces of equipment in some cases to roll up into a master that says it was X at this stage, it was Y at this stage, you lost at this stage, that kind of thing going on? We do we do it two ways. Uh, sometimes we'll just track the last machine in the line and we'll, and we'll actually have downtime reasons that are associated for all of the upstream equipment. It depends on whether you can store the parts in between the steps or not. Mm-hmm. So if there's a transfer line, as an example, that transfers, let's assume that it's op 10 to op 50. There's five operations and it transfers one, one op to the other. Okay. Well, if op 10 is not producing parts and it's a simultaneous transfer, well, op 20 is down too. There's no, there's no raw material. Sorry. Whereas and if you had a line where you had op 10 
could feed more than one OP20, so that part actually gets either palletized or put back into OP20, then I would recommend tra tracking each individual piece of equipment. So it just depends on the application. It depends on if it's a job shop or a high production shop, that's what parts they're making, what, uh, what type of manufacturing, how many times the part's handled in and out of the equipment, how it's handled in and out of the equipment. So we've done it both ways. There's benefits to doing it both ways. Uh, I'm going to make an assumption, and you can correct me. Uh, the new equipment that's coming out today, does that already have the same kind or similar type of technology already built into new equipment? Therefore, your process is for older equipment? No, actually our process handles both, and, and we have to handle both because we actually want to end up with the data harmonized into one dashboard so that it doesn't matter. The age of the equipment is irrelevant. Mm -hmm. the, the problem is the same equipment utilization, when's it running and when it's not, and if it's not, why it's not. Uh, so the system itself is built to handle any piece of equipment from some, something that's 40 years old to something that was just purchased yesterday. And the new equipment today is not made with that kind of technology already built in? The new equipment today is made with, if, well, some of the new equipment today is, comes with an MP, comes with an MP Connect adapter. Mm -hmm. But some, a lot of companies here will have proprietary software that's good for their so they'll calculate the productivity of their particular process, but you can appreciate that that process for most companies is one of a number of process, processes within the company itself. So people will have anything from injection molding to punch presses, the laser cutting, fabrication, metal chip cutting, assembly, list goes on, out the door goes a finished product, depending on the operation steps. You'd have to have, if you depend on proprietary technology from each one of those, you'd have six or seven different systems that the operator would have to interface with in six or different seven places to put the information in. Now we're not even talking about aggregating it into one report that covers the entire plant. Now you're running six or seven reports for each individual step or place in the factory. You can appreciate the problem, right? It becomes yeah. a, a highly complex issue to solve and, and not of little value. And if it's complex to use and of little value, it doesn't get utilized. So the difference in what you're doing is you're combining all these different technologies into one report where you can get the into best one, benefit. Into one system, and, one ultimate, system. And, and ultimately displaying it in one common dashboard and then having it all roll up onto one common set of reports. So who are you selling this to in the company? The CEO? The CFO? Yeah, well, so certainly the, the guy with the purse strings is an important part of the sales cycle. <laughs> I'll bet. <laughs> but uh, uh, a lot of times we get what happens is we'll get with manufacturing engineers who are pro charged with improving the process. And then what they'll do is they'll put a project together, go for capital funding. Uh, then we may have to be involved with the CXO or you know, CFO, whatever, to justify the cost. And then once that's all done, it's really just to you know, let the purchase order and, and uh, let's, let's get started with the implementation. So the fact that you're in Canada, how does that affect your interaction with American manufacturers? We have a lot of customers in the U.S. We have three U.S. employees presently, and we're uh, in the process right now of picking a head office for our U.S base oh. of operations. Where, where are you looking? Uh, somewhere where there's say a Atlanta. high... <laughs> say, say Atlanta. <laughs> somewhere where there's a high concentration of manufacturing. Yeah. And there's lots of places around the U.S. That high, we, uh, our, our largest install base right now is somewhere around I-75 up and down Ohio. So between Michigan and Ohio and down into Kentucky. That seems to be our largest install base. A lot of manufacturing in that area. Uh, logically, probably would be the first place we would start. Mm -hmm. Are there any machines you cannot interface with? Uh, 
we've not had any genre of manufacturing equipment that we can't at least get some tertiary simple information from to know more about it today than we did yesterday. Okay, so even a bench vice? I'm exaggerating. <laughs> we actually have taken the concept of virtualizing the, the machine, so there's a lot of value-added stuff that goes on in manufacturing, things like deburring, packaging, assembly. Uh, we've actually virtualized the concept of a machine and applied it to those uh, operations within the manufacturing environment so we can track the efficiency of that. We've had companies that have uh, put pressure-sensitive mats where the operator steps on, so Theoretically, the operator's in cycle. Interesting. And when the operator's not physically there, then the machine's not obviously, the virtualized machine is not running. This is certainly an interesting approach to that problem because I, I, I didn't figure you could measure anything from a bench device, but a pressure sensitive mat would certainly give you the data. Well, there's a will, there's a way. <laughs> well, that's, that's uh, certainly what uh, makes it great to, to work in America. It's the can do spirit. You certainly have found some interesting solutions. And I think you found a very interesting area. How green are, is the grass that you're going to be mowing here? Right now, the uh, this is a, uh, not to quote any advisory group without their permission, but it's public knowledge. Our advisory group does a lot of these types of studies. And the one that was the most recent one that I saw, which was six or eight months ago, one of the statistics in there was about 97% of current manufacturers are disconnected. They run the disconnected manufacturing model. We enable the connected manufacturing model. So when you say about the grass, there's fields and fields and fields of grass. Pick your, like, we're, we're manufacturing technology agnostic. We don't really care what type, what you manufacture. Right. As long as it's discrete, where we can improve the process. So anything from aerospace, uh, we've done a lot of work in aerospace. We've done work in automotive. We've done work in, uh, in uh, small uh, medical devices. We've, the list goes on in terms of genres. We don't really, we're agnostic. As long as we can have a discrete signal from when the equipment's operating and when it's not, we can improve that process. Anything else, uh, uh, David, as we wrap up here that you would like to share with our listeners uh, about either your company or who you're here with? Well, uh, we're very pleased to be uh, part of uh, Mazak's exhibit here. And, 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 uh, and they have some really great laser equipment and now it's able to speak to us intelligently so that's awesome um i would say that you know to the, your listener base the technology is baked it's here there's companies in every manufacturing vertical that you can think of that are using it and they're seeing tremendous benefit and the question i would you know the challenge out there is why wait for every day that you don't do something like this whether it's with our technology or somebody else's you're leaving money on the table at the beginning of our interview with you, you used a key word that was affordable. I'm not going to ask you for prices. Uh, we don't want your competition, if you have any, uh, to know those numbers. But is it truly uh, affordable, even to the three, four-man mach machine shop? Yes, but I would argue that the three or four-man machine shop is probably not necessarily their initial target market because mm -hmm. that's pretty. That's a fairly simple management right. uh, of a manageable size. Right. But the absolutely affordable. Because we've taken a toolkit approach and canned, uh, canned this concept into a technology, mm -hmm. we can replicate it. And anything you can replicate, you can sell for less money than if you did it one-off. David, I'd like you to give uh, our listeners your web address in case okay. they want to get in touch with you. It's www.memexautomation.com. Okay. And that's David McPhail with Menix Automation. David, thank you for being a guest on our show. This is 
been a very interesting conversation about how uh, management can talk to the machines or at least get data from the machines. I think it's invaluable. I wish you the best of luck in getting into as many manufacturing operations as you can. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. And we'll be back after a short commercial break with Manufacturing Talk Radio. Manufacturing Talk Radio will be right back. All Metals and Forge Group manufactures open-die forging in blocks, hubs, shafts, flanges, cylinders, gear blanks, and custom forge shapes, including seamless rolled rings in alloy, carbon, stainless and tool steels, aluminum, nickel alloys, copper and titanium for parts and assemblies in aerospace, oil and gas exploration, defense, machinery, transportation, shipbuilding, energy and power, pulp and paper, and many other industries. Visit steelforge.com or call 800-600-9290. American Crane and Equipment Corporation in Douglasville, Pennsylvania is a leader in specialized cranes, hoists, and material handling equipment for industries including aerospace, nuclear, oil and gas, transit, construction, and waste handling. Call 877-877-6778 or visit AmericanCrane.com. That's AmericanCrane.com or 877-877-6778. It's no secret that manufacturers are having trouble filling jobs. Now with ThomasNet's new job board, help is on the way. For manufacturers, ThomasNetJobs.com is the go-to resource to recruit new talent. Post your jobs and get in front of thousands of potential employees. Or, if you're looking for a new job or you want to reinvent yourself, thomasnetjobs.com offers exciting opportunities from the shop floor to the C-suite in supply chain management, engineering, production, or sales. Remember, thomasnetjobs.com. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We are here with uh, Ron Jewell. Uh, I spoke with Ron earlier today at the Fabtech show here in Atlanta, uh, Georgia, at the uh, Georgia World Congress Center. He's with Industrial Magnetics, Inc. Uh, And when I was speaking with him, he said, Kim, I'd like to show you and Lou something called programmable magnets. And, And we all kind of thought, huh, gee, what's a programmable magnet? But I had to go down and see and find out for myself. Turns out it's pretty cool stuff. Uh, they do some things with magnets that, that uh, it's a new way of thinking about a magnet. So, Ron, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Lewis. Appreciate Thank, that. Thanks for coming, Ron. And if you want to give our listeners an idea of what a programmable magnet is, as opposed to, as you and I were talking, just a basic flat surface magnet. I, sure, I'd be glad to. So, Industrial Magnetics provides products uh, for... Uh, manufacturing automation. So you'll see uh, magnetic lifts, uh, trans, uh, transporter and conveyor systems, um, food and pharmaceutical purification systems, work holding and so forth. And what we're here uh, announcing um, at Fabtech is this new polymagnet technology. And a polymagnet is simply a single piece of magnetic material that has more than one north and south pole on the material. So we uh, encode a, a number of magnetic elements on a single piece of magnetic material, arrange it in a pattern of north and south poles, and we get 
vastly different uh, behaviors than a standard magnet. Uh, Tim, you had a chance to see this earlier. I did. Um, and it, uh, it's one of those uh, technologies that shows very well, uh, if you can see it, and even better if you can put it in your hands. But uh, I would like to uh, just pass a couple of these to you and, and Lewis and, and get your reaction. Absolutely. So um, I have here a standard um, high-energy rare earth magnet made out of neodymium. They're, these magnets are everywhere, all over this uh, show for sure. And um, I'm going to pass you a, uh, a, a piece of magnetic viewing film where you'll be able to see the uh, single-pole um, nature of that standard magnet. I'm also going to hand you a piece of, uh, I think it's 30,000 uh, inch steel, and you can stick that magnet to the steel and feel the performance, uh, both in, uh, you know, torsional strength and also uh, in shear uh, resistance. Pretty strong magnet. Right. By contrast, I'm going to show you a polymagnet. This was uh, engineered to be stronger than the one you just had in your hand, and uh, we did so by. Uh, imparting on here a pattern that you'll be able to see, the audience will not, um, of multiple north and south poles. You can see the little white lines uh, through yeah. the magnetic viewing film. That is, indicates a transition from you know north pole to south pole. And, Lewis, you can feel it's uh, quite a bit stronger, yes? Well, I didn't sleep well last night, so I'm a little weaker today, but... Wow, that's impressive. That's significant. Uh, that's probably about 500% stronger... Uh, in both um, uh, tensile strength and in shear than the standard magnet. And the uh, reason we call them programmable is that pattern can be tuned for a particular alloy or a particular uh, thickness of, of metal. So uh, right away, uh, one of the simplest applications for a polymagnet is that you can get a lot more um, strength, a lot more attached force for your neodymium. Now, for those of you who can't see this, I mean, we have the one magnet, which is a standard single uh, magnetic material, round disc magnet. Uh, the other one's identical in every way, except that, that Ron's company has done some, uh, some interesting <laughs> programmed uh, pattern into the magnet, and you can't get it off the metal very easily anymore. It's really kind of a fascinating technology. Yeah. Ron, how did this come to pass? Well, um, it, it was in, the technology was invented by Larry Fullerton, um, who is not a magnets guy, but rather a uh, radar specialist. So everything to Larry is a wave, uh, and he's an expert in correlation and cancellation. Uh, and that's how the technology originally started. Industrial Magnetics is the polymagnet manufacturer for the holders of the intellectual property, and we make the polymagnets for any uh, potential customer that has uh, product new product ideas or new process automation ideas that want to use these programmable magnets. Um, uh, I, I mentioned programmable magnets, and I just showed you one that was basically stronger than a standard magnet. Right. Let's look at a little more exotic behavior. Uh, here I have, I'm going to use the, uh, uh, a latch mechanism that we built as, as a way to show you the sort of breadth of variability here. Um, this is a pair of ring magnets, and I have it together here in a uh, a little latch device. It's got a center pole that guides the two magnets together. And the difference between this set of magnets and the standard set is when I turn this 90 degrees, either left or right, the magnet separates. So here is a, a latch mechanism that is enabled by these polymagnet technology, by these programmed magnets. 
It's no, almost it's, like turning it on and off. It, it is. It's very fun to watch because it, it, you lose exactly right. It's like, like turning it on and off. You're turning it 90 degrees, and Ron, you said you could have it set for 1 degree, 10 degrees? That's correct. Uh, it's really just a matter of placement of the magnetic elements or magnetic pixels. We call them maxels. Um, and you can paint that with our uh, magnetization system uh, any way you like. Um, just to take that uh, concept a little further and keep it in the latch analogy, um, what you have there, you guys saw, was a 90-degree turn that turned attract into repel. The one I'm going to hand you now has three detent uh, spots, one every 120 degrees, three times around the circle, and you can feel um, a solid detent that is strictly caused by the magnetic field. So it's a mechanical solution uh, accomplished with a magnetic field, a permanent magnetic field. It's fascinating. That is, that is phenomenal. <laughs> the applications here. How do you get it apart? <laughs> uh, that one, if you turn to a, a, a relaxed state, which will be in between the detents, you can kind of shear it apart. Uh, and if you take a look at the, um, at the pattern on that, Lewis, you'll be uh, instantly uh, informed as to why it works because you can see the 120-degree geometry of the, of the pattern. Now, what's the next one you've got Staying here? Staying right? with the, the latch uh, analogy, uh, I have another latch here, um, same ring magnets as we saw in the first ones. And um, what you'll notice is that when you turn, when you turn this latch, there is no release that happens when I'm spinning this round, nor are there any detents. But there's something different about this. I want to see if you can tell me what it is. There's another magnet, and I'll hand you so I'm, I'm the test guinea pig. Oh, it repels. Exactly. And it, it repels oh. until where? Until you get, until you turn it again. Oh, actually, it's not the turning. All you do Two is get to some distance X, and that will then reverse the forces from a repel, repel to attract. So we are actually reversing the forces that exist between those magnets based on a linear distance apart. So that's like a snap. Yeah. And these can be set, you were telling me, around for any distance. It could be one millimeter, two millimeter, five millimeters. Exactly. It's a programmable. That's why we call it programmable. Uh, and it's almost to a digital uh, level of, uh, of control. So let me ask you a question, Ron. For those who can't see what this is doing, mm -hmm. uh, tell us where this application would work well. Yeah. Uh, so as I mentioned, industrial magnetics uh, provides a lot of process automation and, and manufacturing automation for our customers. And we are doing two things with the polymagnet technology. One, since it's so new and we are the, the certified supplier, um, we are offering for sale loose magnets that people can purchase that have these uh, uh, unique uh, behaviors and integrate into prototypes and tests for new product ideas and process automation ideas. Um, and so we've developed a, a catalog. It's a modest catalog. It has a, a number of pre-engineered magnets with the engineering data that you would need to, mm -hmm. to incorporate such a magnet. And we also offer custom design services. Uh, this is all done under software control. So we can uh, go design a magnet on the fly. Uh, we can actually iterate very rapidly and turn around uh, prototype magnets for our customers. Once it's uh, defined and maybe go into production, then we can provide the production quantity as well. Second thing is that industrial magnetics has 50 years experience in magnetic circuit design and manufacturing, so we can build sub-assemblies, we can build the entire product for you. So it's a really a, it's a path 
to exploit this new technology all through Industrial Magnetics Incorporated. So what I want our listeners to understand is that you may have grown up thinking that uh, magnets were, were two separate surfaces that either attracted if you put the north and south pole together or repelled if you put the north north or the south south. What Ron has done is change the relationship with the magnets so they're, they're now you can change the, the relationship between the two surfaces to do almost anything you want it to do. That, that's uh, very well put. Now, there are certain limitations, uh, and, and I like to you know, lead with those, those caveats. This is one of those technologies where, uh, you know, a lot of uh, hyperbole gets started, uh, and, uh, and it is exciting. There's many, many things you can do, but you have it right, Tim. Essentially, we are making a much more complex magnetic field, but we're doing it in a very simple way, in a repeatable way, on a very uh, simple, uh, you know, magnetic element. And... Um, the complexity that can be achieved uh, is kind of uh, unknown at this point. It's, uh, you know, we're, this is all brand new. Um, one thing I w- did want to point out, I showed you magnets that uh, could be uh, made to uh, be optimized for specific metal thicknesses, magnets that ha- can exhibit behaviors for attach and release, um, and they c- these things can be layered. These uh, behaviors can be combined. You have a certain amount of neodymium. You have a, an imagination about where you want to take the... Uh, the uh, behavior, and uh, and we can help you try to uh, uh, identify where those uh, opportunities lie. So uh, anything that has a magnet in it, or almost any um, anybody's head who has an, an imagined idea of, gee, if these could only be, should certainly start to look at programmable magnets. It's definitely a good point. Uh, if you're using a magnet, a programmable magnet, a polymagnet might be a better solution. If you're using a mechanical contrivance, a, a polymagnet solution might be a better solution. So we are here to help uh, make those evaluations uh, rapidly, uh, help our customers do that rapidly. I want to show you one more um, incarnation of the uh, multi-force magnet. Lewis, the last one you handled actually was a repel snap uh, device uh, in, uh, implemented as a latch. This is actually the opposite of what you just saw, and I'll let you. Uh, I'll give you the one that's uh, freestanding, so you can actually see the patterns on here. Sure. But these are programmed to attract at a distance and repel up close. So it's actually the same concept as this one, but the behavior is much different, almost like a vibration isolation device or a shock absorber or a soft lock mechanism. And for those of you who can't see it, what we have here are, are two magnets and some uh, in a in a lucite holder with uh, in the shape of a diamond, so that we can have little slides for it. And and the uh, magnets, when they're programmed and they go into a, a particular position, attract each other and pull together until they reach about a three millimeter distance or two millimeter distance, and then they stop and begin to resist each other. It's a fascinating behavior change. Right, and it's not levitation. It's actually locked in equilibrium. There's, it takes, it's a spring, basically, right? Uh, it takes force to move it apart, force to put it together. And that distance is engineerable, and the stiffness is engineerable. You're limited by the energy available in the magnet uh, and in what you're trying to actually accomplish. Mm-hmm. This, so, is, this is Star Trek stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really is. This really is amazing. I get that comment, uh, and, and it's, it's been a fascinating ride because... For some reason, nobody's ever done this before. We've known about magnets for 2,600 years, and uh, this is the first time this type of 
um, multipole polymagnet technology has been implemented. Astonishing. Yeah, it's fun, it's fun to play with these. Uh, you know, the one thing you, you might consider doing, if you haven't already, and I know that some toy manufacturers have come come to you. It's true. These would make great toys just the way you have them. Yeah, executive desk collection or something. Yeah, yeah. there you go. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, but even for kids who are so used to the typical north-south magnet, they just clamp together mm-hmm. and you wrestle them apart, yep. are not used to this. This could set some imagination. I, I have to see this one again. And yeah. You need to explain it a little better to me, even though okay. the listeners may not be able to sure. really comprehend. Sure. At, at one point, it's pulling, and then at another point, it pushes. That's right. So, That's right. <clears throat> so what's happening is the, um, the magnetic elements, the maxil that we paint on there, the larger that magnetic element region is, the further out the magnetic field goes. So if I have mostly, uh, if I have large regions on one that are south and large regions on, on the other that are north, I'm going to get an attract from a, a long distance. Then buried down there, if you put the magnet uh, viewing film on the surface, you'll see a tiny embedded pattern of small maxils. Those actually repel the maxils on the other surface. So. What's happening is I've got a long, uh, I've got control of the reach of the magnet, and whether it attracts or repels. It's it's that simple. It's, a, it's just a force balancing act, and it's not complex to accomplish. We can you can do this yourself on our machine, and uh, we do a lot of finite element modeling and other engineering to to optimize these. But you can actually just experiment, cut and try, uh, and, and and rapidly arrive at the solution. Being that our, our listeners can't see this, um, on your website, do you have a fairly, fairly good representation a- of what this is? Magnetics.com. And uh, there are some videos demonstrating the, uh, these magnets. Uh, in, in addition, these little um, colorful um, demonstrators that you've handled, we actually put into a demonstrator kit because we had so many uh, requests to borrow the magnets or to buy some. Sure. Because you can understand if you're trying to explain this to your colleagues, uh, using words and hand gestures is one thing, but putting it in their hands is, is totally another. Yeah, so the magnetic uh, demonstrator kits are, uh, or polymagnet demonstrator kit is available as well on the website, magnetics.com. How did you get the name magnetics.com? Got there early. <laughs> so what, what you've really done here is taking a, a single piece of, make, of material that can be magnetized and then controlled where? It's magnetized. It's not just magnetized evenly across the that, surface. That's exactly right. And I've learned a lot about this, uh, uh, being involved with the technology and with industrial magnetics. Uh, when, these, when these magnets, these uh, neodymium magnets are magnetized, typically they're done in batch, you know, large batches overseas and uh, subject to a very large magnetic field, very intense magnetic field, but a large one. And all the magnets get the same polarity. They're all north or south. And then they pull them out, nickel plate them, and sell them to us. Um, and in this case, we are actually, uh, it's a spot magnetizer. That's a good way to look at it. Oh, right. We call it a mag printer because it acts like a, a dot matrix printer. It moves the magnetic material uh, substrate underneath the a print head. And it comes along and puts down north and south poles mm. very rapidly. These uh, magnets you saw in your hands take seconds to make. Wow. Yep. You know, unless you actually sit down, and I would encourage people to go to magnetics.com and to look at the videos that are available there, it's hard to imagine that this kind of new technology exists. And lose right, this is kind of Star Trek, Star Wars kind of technology because it's just a complete shift from 
what we know as a simple magnet. Absolutely. And uh, what we'll see is uh, the, uh, the Industrial Magnetics Incorporated products, the ones we have off the shelf, uh, this technology will make its way into those products. Uh, you know, this is all brand new, but it'll definitely start uh, appearing there. But uh, just as importantly, we are going to support uh, prospective customers, uh, product designers, process innovators that want to use this technology and help them turn around their ideas. So there's, uh, we're going to tap into the, the great uh, um, pool of, of, of innovation out there and help them by product, providing polymagnets they can use. Now, when I was over at your booth and we were fooling around with these, I realized I had my cell phone in my pocket, and I thought, oh, man, my cell phone's toast because I've been playing with these powerful magnets. And that's not the case, though, is it? What a great uh, point, and I, I kind of try to lead with that in many cases because uh, magnets, uh, especially the very high-energy rare-earth magnets, have gotten uh, bad reputations. And, in fact, they deserve it because if you have a large magnet that has one single north and south pole, uh, the magnetic field reaches out based on the geometry and the chemistry of that magnet. With polymagnets, when you start putting multiple magnetic elements on there, you necessarily abbreviate the field. And so, uh, just like you saw with the uh, optimization for thin metal, you can go beyond that. You could uh, optimize the magnet so you get, say, uh, maximum attach and zero interference on the other side of, of, a, of a metallic uh, surface. This is very important for maybe some of the electronics you have in your pocket and so forth. Yeah. Right. So you're actually controlling, can control the field so that the field isn't this great broad field. It, it may be a tiny field that only stands up a millimeter or two. Exactly. And all that is engineerable. Um, there are limitations, but right now uh, for our manufacturing process, uh, we are printing these maxles anywhere from half a millimeter in size to about 12 millimeters in size. That's a, that's a big maxle. Yeah. Uh, and so those you know, get to be very large magnets, uh, very capable magnets, um, and they're safe magnets. So stronger and safer. It's a. Uh, and it doesn't affect credit cards. Uh, you can you can engineer it that way. That's right. That's incredible, Ron. We certainly appreciate uh, having you on the show today. This is fascinating technology. Again, it's Industrial Magnetics Inc. The website is magnetics.com. Ron, thank you for being a guest and bringing over this neat set of executive toys, if you will. Tim, I'm going to have to get a kit. Yeah, we have to get kits. <laughs> yeah, Tim and Lewis, thank you both very much. I really appreciate the opportunity. I, I love this, doing this. This is uh, the most exciting thing I've ever been around. And uh, I advise, uh, uh, advise you, yes, please do get some kits and come by at uh, 2147B. 2147B. Take a look at uh, okay. these. Thanks very much. Great, Rod. Thank, thank you. And uh, that's going to wrap this up for Manufacturing Talk Radio. We certainly appreciate everyone uh, learning uh, being here with us at Fabtech. Lou, it's been a great show uh, through today. Yeah, it's great. We've, I don't think we've ever talked this much. No, we really <laughs> haven't. Uh, we will be back on the air at 1 p.m. tomorrow, Eastern Standard Time. And we look forward to you listening to us then. And that wraps us up for Manufacturing Talk Radio today. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.